people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. that can be comfortably condemned are the perversions of others. I will persist and survive without God's or society's sanction. I will not be tortured. I will not be punished. I will not be guilty. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for thee, preserve thy body and soul for everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for thee. And be thankful. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Leon Chase. Hey, Mike. It's an honor to be here again. Also back in the booth is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello again. We are kicking off Black History Month with a look at Bill Gunn's 1973 film, Ganja and Hess. The film stars Dwayne Jones as Hess Green, a scholar who is stabbed with an ancient dagger by a crazed houseguest, the husband of Ganja Meda, played by Marlene Clark. Hess is resurrected and helps Ganja be reborn as well. The two are now addicted to blood in one of the most unusual vampire films around. We will be spoiling this film as we go along, as well as the recut version Blood Couple and the Spike Lee remake The Sweet Blood of Jesus. You have been warned. So, Leanne, when was the first time you saw Ganja and Hess, and what did you think? Man, this is really embarrassing, but I have to confess something. This is one of those movie titles that comes up on those lists of best black exploitation films of all time. And I, for no good reason, decided in my mind, maybe because it was two people's names, maybe because one of them is Ganja. I just decided it was a lighthearted buddy comedy in my mind. Like one of those things Bill Cosby would have done with Sidney Poitier in the 70s. Uptown Saturday Night is where a couple of nice guys find their piece of the pie, but have to go through Geechee Dan, Silky Slim, Leggy Peggy, Sharp Eye Washington, and Madame Zenobia to get it. Don't be like me. Read the synopsis. Watch the trailers. I just, it's one of those things I always skimmed over. Oh, whatever. So to answer your question, I probably actually watched it like maybe a year or two ago and was, of course, pleasantly surprised to say the least. It's it's so much more than what I thought it was. So yeah, I'm, I'm a fan. 
I kind of love it then when people go into movies expecting one thing. And like one point they re-released Near Dark to have like this Twilight-esque cover art. And I just had this great thought of all these like like middle-aged soccer moms and teenage girls being like, oh, it looks so romantic. And yeah, they're getting Bill Paxton saying, I like them better shaved, you know, and oh, and having the cramps on there. Gajit Hess is a film I've, I had read about for years and was always really intrigued. And as I know we'll probably go into for a long time, it was not the easiest film in its original form to get a hold of. Thank God we live in an era now where it's in print on beautiful Blu-ray, thanks to Kino. But, but for a long time, you couldn't get it. And this, when we started planning to do this episode, you gave me the perfect excuse to be like, I'm going to buy that Blu-ray. So thank you, Mike, for endorsing my spending that probably should be going to like hiring my education or something but i got to better my film education i love this movie everything that hits my cinematic sweet spot in the most deep magical heavy way is in this film i absolutely loved it kino did a great job i think the one person who needs to be shouted out here is david callett from all day entertainment as well i think he was one of the ones that originally did the restoration and then Kino has since gone back in there. So he um, was a real champion of this film all day. I don't even know if they're around anymore, but they used to do some great work and they're just kind of forgotten. They did a, they put out a movie called treasure Island had nothing to do with Robert Louis Stevenson, but fantastic movie. And then, yeah, this one really took me by surprise. I remember reading about it a lot earlier than I saw it. I remember I think it was David Walker and Tim Lucas wrote an article in Video Watchdog where they really went through and did a very nice breakdown of what's in one movie and what's in another by those two movies. I mean, Ganjin has some blood couple because this movie, when it was released, it was like you said, Heather was super hard fine. It was, there was one print that was in the Museum of Modern Art, and then there was a kind of bastardized bastardized version called blood couple that was a lot easier to find and that was floating around and now it's actually the opposite where blood couple is tougher to find and ganjin has is easier to find go figure so they did a great job with that and i will admit that i've seen both of these versions now plus the spike lee version plus reading christopher Seaving's book I am so confused about what's in what version and what isn't. So please forgive me if I screw up at any point during this conversation. Like, oh yeah, there's that great scene. It's like, no, you idiot. That's in the Spike Lee version because the Spike Lee version, and we'll talk about this in the second half of the show, but there are moments that are exactly Ganjin has. So it's, I'm very confused right now. So appreciate you guys being here to help me set me straight here on this path to uh, Ganjin Hess, which is just yeah, what an unusual film and what a scrappy movie this is. And it feels like we are not going to get a chance to make another movie like this ever. So let's go balls to the walls with this. It's not unparalleled, but the films that have that kind of same sort of magic about it are the ones that are super special, you know, and that can include anything from Cassavetes to Kenneth Anger. You know, it's it's the... There's just the full sort of experimental spirit of it. It's so weird to me when, and I don't know if you guys the same way. I'm so curious. Like whenever I, I would read up stuff on it while prepping for this podcast and see people call it black exploitation, and I'm like, I mean, I know Blood Couple was certainly 
you know, that was the recut version that was definitely purposely kind of more aimed at that market. But Ganjin has to me, it's like, I feel like sometimes there are certain 70s films that are called black exploitation just because like it's made by an African-American and it has a primarily or predominantly black cast. And it's like, because there's nothing exploitation about this film, in my in my opinion. Like, I think this is just 100% art. And it's definitely, you know, to quote, like, sort of Jean Roland, he always said his films were horror. They were cinema of the fantastique. And I think, in its own way, Ganjan Hess is absolutely cinema of the fantastique. What I wrote down to myself was, oh, this is black exploitation at its best, where, yes, we're calling it that because it was made by black people in a time when that was a still hard thing for people to do. But also, it touches on civil rights. It touches on class. It's got a rich, a very rich protagonist, like a lot of things that were not being depicted at the time. Like, I, I agree with you fully that it does not fall into the kind of typical, let's be honest, sometimes tacky definition of of what that is it's actually like it's there's a there's a lot more consciousness in it word i would use and you know me like i have no problem with any exploitation (laughs) all i mean i've cut my teeth on a lot of them but time and place too you know put this in the same category where you'd have blackenstein lest we forget there is still a pimp i was very purposeful when i introduced this film and i said this is black history month and we're talking about black history films like in previous years I have called February Black Exploitation Month or, you know, some sort of play upon that. But this one, I'm being very specific to say, you know, we're celebrating Black History Month because all four of the films that we're talking about this month, all directed by African-Americans, all with a predominantly black cast. Welcome home, brother Charles. You say it might be exploitative, especially, you know, the killer cock angle of that, but that's really like the last few minutes of it. And the rest of it is, is a lot more serious than that. It's really this guy who's struggling, who just keeps getting put into the wrong place at the wrong time kind of thing. And all of these movies, I think are very not of that mode. They're not your Foxy Browns. Nothing to say that there's anything wrong with Foxy Brown, Shaft, Sweet, Sweet Back, any of that kind of stuff. These are a different stripe of film. And these are the kind of films where if you're going in expecting your Poitier and, and, and Cosby film, you might be really sad when you come out of this, or you might be just like, oh, wow, I didn't know what this was. And this is fantastic because like I said, he's Bill Gunn, the director of this. I mean, the guy was in a horrible situation when it comes to like his first movie stop shelved by Warner brothers, a really good print or a complete version of, of guns vision of the film has never been released. He did this one, which again, just kind of died on the vine. He had that one copy over at the museum of modern art. The rest of it is blood couple. And after the exorcist came out, they called it like double possession. It had all these different names, just kind of went through the ringer with that. And then he kind of stops making movies for a while. And then he ends up doing one called personal problems. I think in the early eighties, it's been a while since I've seen that one. It might be a little bit later than that. And then he dies when he's very young. I mean, the guy was a real artist and he was an artist in every field. You know, he was, he was all about writing, acting, directing, just doing all of these different things. And then he brings together all of these great collaborators. I mean, we'll hear from Sam Wayman later on in the show, his musical score, what he's doing with the sound in this movie 
fucking fantastic. The use of the tribal music when the bloodlust is coming up, where he's layering multiple songs over each other. I mean, this soundtrack just its own. Just watch this movie with headphones on. You will not be disappointed. Oh my God. The audio floored me. The first time I saw this, there was there's particularly kind of like a dream sequence. Uh, where Hess, you know, who we find it's like the Stodger of Anthropology. And it's almost, I don't know if it's like a dream or it almost at times feels like there's some sort of, I mean, that's the thing. There's so much of this film where your reality is there, but it's sort of almost a little misty at times, which I really love, though, because, I mean, I, I often feel like, you know, life in itself is only the near in the most basic sense. Like we're born, we live and we die, but everything else tends to be a little more fluid, <laughs> a little more, you know, have a little film over it. But, you know, you hear like those, like you said, like that, like that African, there's like an African work song that gets layered over something else. And this film plays so much with this editing of audio to build an atmosphere. And so few films take that time to do that. And especially to kind of, work it in so intelligently like at one point we hear like um let's say like it's a blues song but it starts getting like echoey and it's almost like like if it was on like a i've recorded this before like you know non-linear editing but like if you're editing this digitally that sequence would have layer and layer and layer over it building you know something so solid and it's so evocative and just brings you into this film it's like a, it's almost like you're drugged it's like an opiate in a way i've never done opiates but it's a man i imagine <laughs> like it's what it's like and it's incredible it's absolutely incredible yeah you know people use the word psychedelic to describe movies a lot and that often describes a sort of 60s very flashy thing and this is this is truly psychedelic it creeps up on you misty the word you use that's a great word it there's a real sense of things sort of moving in and out, and it's got that great early 70s low budget, like similar to like the Hammer horror films, where it's just got this dark quality to it, and everything's just a little a little soft around the edges. I wrote down, again, the word psychedelic for that reason, exactly what you said. And, and the music, I love that in the beginning, I forget which song it is, but I know that before the opening credits end, there's one song that manages to cover the subjects of Christianity, blood, and slavery. Like, it just lays out so many things that, in various ways, this movie touches on, and they're all in that first song before the credits are even done. It's like a sung voiceover instead of having the title cards, which they do have title cards, though the title cards, it feels like they're in the wrong place. Or the oh wrong my god, tense. thank you. Yes. I was gonna ask about that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, it almost feels like they're like, Oh, you have to have some title cards in here to explain what's going on, Bill. And he's like, Okay, sure. And just does everything that he can to just fuck with that. Where it's just like when you're watching it for the first time, you're just like, Wait, they said that he already was turned and now this is happening. It's like, what's going on? So again, it's like questioning like which version of stuff was that were the title cards even in there was that a dream you know or was it in blood couple or was it in the right place in blood couple well yeah i can confirm they they are there in the original and the first time i watched it my thought was okay so we're just laying out the first act in titles and going straight into what happens next and i was like no we're gonna lay out the titles and then we're gonna show you everything we just told you is gonna happen which was a choice you know 
there's a lot of choices in here, and especially the character that Bill Gunn plays himself. <laughs> we start off with Dr. Hess Green, you know, kind of, uh, he's this wealthy anthropologist. He's doing all this research on this ancient Nigerian culture of Mithra, and it reminds me of like the uh, the Evil Dead, you know, with the Sumerian culture or whatever that is that they, they uh, talk about with the, the Necronomicon. But with this, it's like a civilization that was there thousands of years before the, the Egyptians. And he goes into this office and they're like, oh, yeah, here's your new assistant. It's this guy, George Maida, who's played by our director, writer, Bill Gunn. And he's just the most unpleasant character I've ever met in my life. I mean, he's, there's nothing to like about this guy. He just like, okay, I'll, I'll go to your house and I'm going to drink your wine. I'm going to get all messed up. I'm going to go out to your tree and I'm going to put a noose on the tree and I'm going to threaten to kill myself. And just like, what, what are you doing? What, what even motivated you to want to kill yourself here? And he's just like, well, I, I drowned, but, uh, I, I have this horrible fear of the water. And it's just like Dwayne Jones, Dr. Dr. Green is just like, what? Hey man, I live in a wealthy neighborhood here. I'm the only black guy on my block. Body comes washing up on the shore. The police are going to come knocking. I don't need that, man. And I love how they just set it out. Just like, I don't need the cops messing with my business. And it's like, what's true in 1973 is the same in 2023. You don't need that knock at the door. First of all, I'm glad that you, you two, especially Leon, felt like the titles were setting up because that it took me like probably over halfway the movie to realize, oh, wait, he, you know, he wasn't a vampire from the beginning. <laughs> and, the, and the voiceover doesn't help because the chauffeur, who's also the reverend, is so nice, like who's so lovely because he's not even I love the fact that he's not judging. Hess. He's like, you know, he's not a bad man, but, you know, he's an addict. He's addicted to the blood, but he's, you know, but I love that because even I mean, you know, it's. As somebody who's grown up in the Bible Belt, not all preachers, most of them, in my experience, aren't as cool as that that guy, especially when it comes to addiction. Maybe at first I'm like, well, he's overly nice, Archie, yeah, who's the butler, but that's not bad. I'm like, okay, I'm a polite person. But then by like time he's drunk in the tree, I literally have in my original notes, worst house guest ever. I wrote the same thing. (laughs) I wrote the exact same thing, Heather. Oh my God. It's like, and he does. Worst thing, anybody who's ever been that person or had to take care of somebody who is super drunk and out of control that does that, does that kind of thing. And he's like, oh, wait, hand me my drink before I get out of the tree. It's like, yeah, that's what you need, honey. You need more liquor. Get out of the tree. Get down. Would you put my drink? I saw you put something in my drink. I was like, I, I took the ants away from your drink, dickhead. And he's so cool about it. I mean, bless Hess. And, and it's so great to see Dwayne Jones who should have been cast as a lead in more films. I mean, it's kind of, it's almost sort of like the same thing I feel about you're saying, Mike, about Gunn, where it's like, man, this is a guy that should have been given a lot more opportunities. And I feel that way about Dwayne Jones, too. Like, he's he's great. And is it me, though? Do you guys, did you guys get kind of a haunted quality off of him even before he's turned? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Because that I think that's everything that was kind of throwing me off, too, about the timeline. Because his has like is so fascinating because he just has it's like the world, the weight of the world's on his shoulders the the whole time in such a subtle way. Like, I feel like a really like intuitive and intelligent performance in a way like there's nothing stagey 
really about anything in this movie, but I feel like with Jones, especially his performance, I don't, it's, I can't think of any performances I've seen like it, I guess. Yeah, he's very cool, almost to a fault at certain points, in my opinion, but like he's definitely, you're right. Like, I think a lot of thought went into that where, even before all of this supernatural stuff happened to him, you have this sense that he's always just been kind of a little bit over the world or a little bit in, in his own place. And yeah, his his interactions, like he's he's a really great foil because not only is made of the worst house guest ever telling these awkward stories, like Hess is having none of it. He's giving him nothing. He's like, he's got the greatest I want to go to bed look on his face. <laughs> <laughs> through like their entire conversation oh god yeah there's nothing worse than having to babysit like that it's like you're because you're not getting paid for it oh you're paying well you're paying for it but you nobody's paying you for it you know like that's it's it's rough and even even at times i almost felt bad for beta though and he's trying to be like engaging and tells this whole story about seeing a film being made in in europe i want to say was it sweden Sweden or Amsterdam, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and there's this whole thing. You don't want to say cut because it means kind, but you, the guy didn't want to say kind because I mean, a lot of people are offended by that word, and I would apologize if anybody's offended me saying it. But, I mean, look at the world around you. Are you really going to be offended by a word? Come on. Like, just watch the news. There's way more offensive things in this world than a word. But, but he's telling this whole story, and he's so eager to tell it, and it's not really that great of because he's like, I thought that was tremendous. And 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 Ed's is just looking at him like, yeah, cool yeah. story, bro. <laughs> what, 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 what time is it? Oh, man. <laughs> sure, I'm tired. <laughs> it might be my turn to mix up the versions, but isn't one of the deleted scenes where, or is it in the Spike Lee version where somebody actually says, like, he's kind of weird when they introduce him? <laughs> I don't remember which version that is. It's, I think it might be the uh, Spike Lee, yeah. It might like be, we yeah. like we needed that. Like yeah. sort of, <laughs> you think <laughs> we get kind of a dynamic side to him, though. And that's the thing. Gunn is such a genius at doing in this film with this character and later on with, with Ganja, with Maida's wife. Because at first you're like, oh, my God, these people are terrible. But then he'll throw in something where it's like, "Ooh, ooh, OK, we got some character arc. We have something that's actually a little true, a little pure. And the way it's done is so poetic. And it's just, it takes you from being like, oh God, this, I can't, I can't with this person to really feeling them as a human, as just like this really wounded animal. Like, and that we all can be, and we all are at times in our lives. And it, it's, it's brilliantly done. It's, it's so good. But things do escalate quickly. I had to rewind a couple times to just be like, okay, so wait, Hess is in bed. And he, like, I was looking for the thing that incited it. And, and as far as I understand it, it's like, no, we've just set up that Maida's not stable. And then he's just decided to come in and beat Hess with something, which, you know, is part of the plot escalates into him grabbing the knife, correct? Yeah, the chronology is kind of strange because, yeah, he stabs Hess with that dagger, which is a really cool dagger in this version. It, it almost looks like, like a femur, but with almost like a cup on the end, like collect blood or something inside of that and they talk about how it's got bone and blood and all this stuff on it but yeah he stabs him and he goes Meta goes and takes a bath right and then the the one scene that grossed everybody out which is how he brushes his teeth with with his own bath water oh, that was <laughs> so nasty that was disgusting i really i'm like drink all the blood you want 
But don't be brushing. The, I mean, you've been your your body juices have been stewing in that water. What are you doing, man? <laughs> For the record, I believe that that's the second grossest scene, and actually the grossest is the toe ring. But we'll get to that. Oh sure. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh no. The extended I, toe ring. Closes. I was, dude. I was scared. There was some shrimping about to happen, and. I know there are people that love that, and I am nobody to kink shame. Brock your freak flag. But personally, no, 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 no. I'm good. Get them toes out of your face. Yeah. I could use a wide shot there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A wide, long, long. Like, put that in the background. Yeah, yeah. Drink, get all that blood in your mouth. I'm fine with that. But don't, please, don't be brushing with teeth with bath water. There's a lot of shots in this movie, just kind of go off on a tangent here. There's a lot of shots in here where I feel like, like we are too close, like just step back one step and, and we can see a little bit more like there's later on, like way later in the film when Hess is in the church, it's like, you can only see like just a little bit of his face. And it's just like, if you just stepped back one step, we would get a little bit more of this, but yeah, same thing with that, that foot and everything. I'm just like. Yeah, take it back a little bit. Just go go back, like Cleveland or something. Yeah, just and, and he he takes his bath, does that thing with toothbrush, and then he goes and he kills himself. And I'm just like, okay, yeah, again, worst house guest ever. Hess, the way he plays it as a person who wakes up after being murdered and realizes he's fine is the coolest performance on earth. I would probably say something. I might make a noise. I'll be honest. Hess is like, oh. Oh, all right. Did I hear a gunshot? And then just moves on. <laughs> I will say like the scene, because there's a scene before he commits suicide where Maida writes this poem. Oh, he boy, the poem. Yeah, thing. I forgot the poem. And see, the poem is, that's the part for me that added like a dimension to him that I was like, oh, and the poem is so sad and, and really beautifully written and it's heavy and just it's addressed to was all the unnamed male black children of the world i believe it's like it's that and there's a line about basically comparing to flowers but flowers are nameless it just broke my heart it's so heavy i just feel like so sad thinking about it now because like that's that's how you know that's what happens when you other anybody because of a you know of a race or religion or sexuality whatever you know gender and just the heaviness of that and the way that he does that that's the thing is like Gun in this film never gets dogmatic. He never makes anything super obvious or on the nose. Like everything is done in such a such a creative and subtle way, and I really love that because I think it's a, it's such a good balance. Yeah, the film still has this like very vivid, creative, experimental kind of feel about it, which again probably hurt him. It's like like it wasn't hard enough being like an African American director. Well, even now, but especially the early 70s and then being making something experimental on top of that, like the two things that uh, you know, a lot of producers and distributors in this country were probably like, oh, <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know. Thank goodness we have this film. I think Gunn was gay as or not gay, but at least queer by maybe. But yeah, there was a lot of that in his work as well. So he had a lot of cards stacked against him. I didn't read a lot about this, but one of the things I did read is that I think someone originally approached him after the success of Blackula. I, I think I have the timeline right. I think it was after Blackula, and they were like, listen, 
we basically need a black healer ripoff. We want another black vampire movie. And by all accounts, he apparently said, okay, but I'm actually going to make this impressionistic movie that's really about addiction instead. <laughs> so it sounds like he was very conscious of like, fine, I'm, I'm just going to go make a piece of art instead. We had our ultimate theater drive in, like what would, what double bills would we, we bought? And the, and for this one, like I was thinking like Martin, even though, but I don't think there's anything quite like this film from first starters and Martin's a whole other kettle of fish, but I feel like both of them, the vampirism's almost really second fiddle to like the bigger picture. And like with Martin, you're dealing kind of with themes of like economic insecurity, just like some abandoned kind of dead town because all the money's gone. There's no jobs. And as, as well as sort of like in you know, systematic sort of familial, in some ways, neglect and abuse. And so I love that. I love it when somebody can kind of take like fantastic elements, but then use them in this way that's really smart to kind of paint a, a, a different picture. But this film, like there's so much fine art, images of fine art, like in the opening, we get like those statues of the fallen angels and that what Gunn paints visually all throughout here is fine art. It's equal. Like everything he does is absolutely 100% equal to the images he shows, which is not an easy thing to do for anybody who's even scribbled like myself. You know, you could also take almost every scene that involves blood in this movie and replace it with heroin and it would still kind of work. He's sneaking off to do it. Whenever he does it, he gets sick. Uh, there's never like that great triumphant Dracula moment where he's like, I just suck somebody's blood. It's like, as soon as it happens, he feels terrible. He runs off. He's puking or, you know, whatever. He's getting sick. Like it's never, he's not having a good time. Yeah. I would pair this maybe with like, what well, was that? The, the Jarmusch film, the, the last couple, is it the last oh, couple only, left alive? Only lovers left alive. Only lovers left yeah. alive. Right. <laughs> to your point, Leon. Yeah, it is very, very drug addict and especially when he meets ganja and uh they kind of fall for each other and the first thing he does after they get married is stab her and he's like oh i want you to be with me forever and it's very much like if you love me you're gonna love my drug you're gonna want to be involved in this it feels very much like that horrible cycle of addiction where it's just like oh cool you're in my inner circle well great let's get high together I mean, I, I got the addiction thing, but that's, yeah, God, that's so sad. And and a really, yeah, smart parallel, especially because her consent to the whole thing seems, I don't know how it came across to you guys. To me, it seemed very iffy because I, I definitely don't think she was fully understanding or made to fully understand like, okay, here's going to be the drawbacks to this. And and that's another smart thing I don't feel like you see in a lot of vampire cinema. I mean, there's a few films that that kind of, yeah, deal with the issue of consent. But most of the time, it's very, like, romantic. It's very, like, oh, we will be together forever. And it's not, like, the reality of, like, well, yeah, but it's, like, there's a price. There's a price. Not everybody wants to pay that price. So you really want to make sure they know what they're getting into. And and God knows, I mean, yeah, heroin's definitely one. And maybe that kind of plays into the whole coolness thing, too, that you're talking about, Leon. Because, I mean, yeah, I mean, heroin is a drug where people, I mean, there's going to be a like almost like a lethargic thing to their movements. You know, it's a downer. And it also, I mean, think about the places where Hess tends to go to feed. I mean, nobody's going to cop at, you know, at a nice, you know, expensive hotel nine out of 10 times. They're going to go cop, you know, in some really seedy places 
or commit crimes and start stealing, which he also does. I have to say that, that Ganja rolls with a lot because, like, you know, she basically finds her husband's dead body in the freezer. And, and you know, like, Mike, I've probably known you, what, almost 40 years? And I'll be honest, if I came over to your house and I found a dead body, I'm not going to say I'm calling the cops, but I'm not sure I'm going to stick around. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and Ganja's just kind of like, okay, I just met this guy. We're in this crazy new adventure. I, I apparently lost my husband. Oh, here he is in the basement. Like, okay. And it's kind of, you know, she's she confronts him about it, but she sticks around. Yeah, you have to wonder what kind of relationship Ganja and Beta had, you know? And Ganja and George, I should say, even though he doesn't like his first name, so... I kept thinking that the whole time. Like, I was like, God, these two must have been hell on wheels, because... When we first meet Ganja, she is very, like, very sort of demanding. Like, she even kind of insults, well, she does insult when she gets there because she sees Hassan. She's like, tell your boss I'm here. And he's like, yeah, I'm I'm the boss. Like, he's super cool about it. Leon, you nailed it. Like, he's totally just like, yeah. Well, and also, I'm sorry to interrupt, but, like, back to when we were talking about consciousness and when Mike was talking about that scene in the tree, it's like they sneak these things in that are a commentary, but nobody has to stop make a big speech about it it's like there's definitely she she has a real moment of like oh i just messed up with my own assumption about this guy and there's this great shot of her where she kind of laughs at herself and then that breaks the ice with them a little bit you know like they really gun did a really good job of putting that stuff in there without making it like let's stop and make the speech now yeah marlene clark is she's dynamite here so so good and yeah, and especially because, again, like, she's playing a character that's a little difficult. I mean, like, she's really mean to Archie. Like, I kept feeling bad for Archie. <laughs> you know, you're right, though. She's a great foil because we have set up Hess as being this stone cold guy in a lot of ways. And she's the first person in the movie to really kind of rock his world. You know, she shows up with a little bit of an attitude and she obviously doesn't have a problem speaking her mind. She's messing with his with Archie. <laughs> You know, like she, there's, there's almost the closest this movie gets to like old Hollywood, like the world's weirdest meat cute, <laughs> <You know? laughs> where she shows up and she's definitely shaking things up for Hess a little bit. He's like, oh, I've, I've not encountered someone quite like this before. I like how when we meet her, we don't see her face for the longest time too. That whole thing in the phone booth where we just see her mouth, and again, she's just berating, like, "Where's my husband?" It's like. Lady, I don't know who your husband is, and he just hangs up on her. I'm like, nice. That's way to go there, Hess. That's fantastic. That was so good. It also takes a while for us to see her, for being like in the title. Like, I feel like it took quite a while for us to actually get to meet Ganja. Yeah, she's kind of the inciting incident for the whole second act of the film. And I was going to say, thought that this might be the first time that a vampire robs a blood bank, but then it was hilarious because I was just watching an old night gallery episode and there's a whole thing of Cesar Romero coming in and wanting to make a withdrawal at a blood bank. So I'm like, okay, I guess this isn't the first vampire to ever knock over a blood bank. I'm sure it was probably a one panel comic in a uh, playboy magazine someplace long before this, but that's pretty cool. The way that he just comes in and he, He's kind of shabby in that scene, like making himself look like he might be a drug addict again, just kind of like 
oh yeah, I'm here to donate some plasma and, you know, get my $20 or whatever, whatever they're paying in 1973. And then he starts that fire and he's just like, oh, hey, fire. And it just starts stealing all the blood. I love that. And it just stores it all down in the wine cellar. You just reminded me of what my pairing would be to answer Heather's earlier question. And I don't think this movie's as good, but I think this with the addiction if you remember that movie oh abel oh, ferrara yeah. yeah yeah ferrara and lily taylor stars in it um where it's basically again vampirism as a philosophical addiction it would be an interesting pairing i'm not sure that movie stands up quite the way this one does but i'd watch them both together of course i was familiar with ganja being a you know a slang term for marijuana but i never heard hess being used for hash i guess just because I don't know who the last person was that smoked hash, but it had to have been like a decade ago, right? <laughs> uh, no, but <laughs> no, okay. <laughs> I just had a birthday party at Leon's house. Come on. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing, Mike, but I love being proven wrong sometimes. Yeah, yeah. me too. <laughs> but I've never heard that term for hash either. I guess like marijuana used to also be called boo because of her. <laughs> My husband said that he's like. We were, he was making, we were making fun of like this movies where you, yeah, like, like a 50 style movie where somebody's like, you know, hey, fellow kids, you have, do you know Mary Jane? And he said something, he did something somewhere, he's like, boo. And I'm like, did you make that? He swears it was slang. I'm like, I'll, okay, I'll believe you, but I've never heard boo. In the language the addicts use among themselves, marijuana is referred to as Mary Jane, pot, weed, or tea. They never say to each other, Let's smoke a marijuana cigarette. They say, let's turn on or let's blast a joint. Smell your clothes. You stink. I quit the clowning. I mean, I need some more M. I need some more M now. But tonight those guys are going to be screaming for it. Let them scream, Benny. You're through. Get out. Yeah, Marlene Clark is fucking awesome. And yeah, she comes in and just tears the whole join apart like all of that coolness that Hess exhibits she exhibits none of that she is just like pure id coming in there and just like I want this I want that and you know like how's this going you know, blah, 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 blah. like yeah making fun of Archie like crazy and like poor Archie he's not even framed so you can see his head he's just this headless body that she's just kind of making fun of I mean the poor guy doesn't even get a close-up other than in the blood couple release of this otherwise it's just neck down She's making fun of Archie. You know, oh, how long you been working here? Oh, they put in the plum and then they brought you in. Ha, 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 kind of thing. It's, she's just, uh, yeah, she's relentless. But she ends up being the perfect pairing with Hess, of all people. Well, and there's that great, you know, that whole great scene where she talks about, like, having this snowball fight. Oh, my God. She nails that so well. And just, you know, and, it, and you just realize, like, oh, God, this poor woman. This woman who's been just total... Like, just totally this, I mean, not nearly as bad as her estranged husband, but still, like, kind of, like, a very difficult house guest. It's like, you realize, oh, shit, well, no wonder. You know, that whole saying hurt people hurt or, you know, know, or vice versa. But, like, you know, just how her mother treated her, just like, you know, like, like, like she was a disease. It's just your heart breaks. And And it also, it's just, it's done in such a smart way where you kind of, you instantly, like, oh, okay. It humanizes her. It's not just like, oh, beautiful, sexy, fiery lady. You know, it's like, no, this is a human being. And that's just, that's a thing I think I really love so much about this film. It's it's 
you know, it's not an easy thing to do in film storytelling in general to properly humanize characters. I mean, it's easy to have anybody can have dialogue where it's like, oh, this is why they're that. But for somebody to make it feel real, that's the talent. And they're all very philosophical. Like theirs is a very philosophical relationship. He has as a professor is obviously very philosophical. And even when he's, you know, dealing with the world's worst house guests, like their actual conversations are are pretty heavy. Like that's not an easy thing to have people just sit and talk about larger life concepts. And for the most part, they pull it off, especially between the Ganja and the Hess character. I think they they really click in that way. Like she's ready to go kind of toe to toe with him on on whatever's on his mind. Yeah, and there's a lot of these conversations. There's very few action scenes. So if you're looking for this kind of rock'em sock'em type of film, you're in the wrong place. I mean, there's the conversation he has with his son at this party where they're just speaking in French and subtitled French. It's like, okay, that's cool. You know, again, just showing that he is such a man of the world that he respects his son who never comes back in the movie again, but he just, you know, it's like, oh, you got to have your education. Starts talking French with him, make sure that he's studying that. Okay. So it's like, yeah, that, that's really cool. And yeah, there's a lot of back and forth between him and other people. I mean, the, the whole thing of like, you know, oh, him not feeling well at that party and having to sneak off again, like you said, Leon, sneak off and get some blood going so that he can feel all right about things. And then, you know, every time he's feeling that hunger, we bring in that tribal music and we cut a lot to like the, the, the Mithrin chief, chief, chief tests. Is that right? That might using the, the proper, uh, yeah, I don't female know. chief. Yeah, I don't know what you call her. She's great. <laughs> oh, she's amazing. Did you notice, and I didn't notice this until I was reading Seabing's book, she's at their wedding in the background. She's there with the flowered he uh, headdress and everything. What? Or not flower, feathered headdress. She's actually in the background when they're getting married. Oh my God, no. Right? Guess I'm watching it again. Like I needed another, like a reason to revisit it again, but I'm like, hell yeah, that's, oh wow. And it's Mabel King. Which is even more incredible. And she looks like those scenes of her and that amazing headdress. She's like Gaia. She's like Mother Earth. Like she looks so beautiful. Yeah. And that's that's one of the things that I love. One of the eight million things I love in this movie. Because even though it's a blood cult, they're not portrayed in any sort of way that you would expect. There's not like, there's no demonization of it. There's no like, they're not portrayed like, ooh, it's just a blood cult. Like, no, she's. She looks like a goddess, like, and it's powerful. And, you know, it's not it's not made to look lesser than Christianity. And Christianity is not made to look lesser than the other one, which I thought was really like such a fascinating choice, because I feel like most filmmakers, even if they if they tried this, one would be sacrificed kind of for the other. You know, you'd either go for like, well, God saves all and, and you know, this heathenry is with the devil or whatever you know but that they don't go that route which i thought was really cool and it's not either or you know it's not sacrificing christianity either where it's like you know oh well this is the ancestry and this is a religion that was forced um on people i mean it was but but a big time and you know all kinds of ways but but i liked that i like the fact that this this film gives you a lot of options nothing's force fed to you it makes you work for it. But that to me is always a sign of respect. I mentioned the deleted scenes before, and most of them I was like, okay, I, I can see why they cut this. It's not that important. One that stuck with me is 
they do get into a tiny bit more of the backstory of of Batwoman's people, and he describes them as being overrun with addiction. Again, like not judging, just like, you know, these people had this blood thing. And like you said, it wasn't really an overt, like malicious cult. It was like these people got into this blood drinking and apparently all got addicted and actually died out of pernicious anemia is the term they use. You know, so you're right. It really is like, it's not like this setup, this typical horror setup of like, ooh, this ancient evil cult. It's kind of like he's he's coming at it anthropologically. Like, here's what happened to these people. I thought that was one of the deleted scenes that may may have added more if it stayed in. Well, and I, this is like, this is a personal note. I love the phrase pernicious anemia. <laughs> and I don't know what it is. I think it's because the first film I've heard that used was Roger Watkins' American Babylon, which is such an incredible film that's dying for a proper release. And I was like, pernicious anemia. And so when I saw that reference in the deleted scenes and I saw like, saw him actually say it, I was, I geeked out a little bit. I marked out. I was like, pernicious anemia, because I'm, I'm that person, one of one. But <laughs> I had to look it up you know, to find out it was a real term. Yeah. It's it's legit. And the great thing is, like, if you look at vitamin supplements, there are some that will say, oh, can help pernicious anemia. And I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> pernicious anemia was once called by the name of this 19th century doctor for whom a disease of the adrenal glands is still named. Jake. Oh, who's Crone? No. Liz. Is ha- Who is Hashimoto? Also incorrect, I'm afraid. Soren doesn't look like he wants to take a swing here. Thomas Addison, Addison's disease. But you know, Mike, you mentioned the scene with his son, and that's another great example in my mind where they're obviously touching on this idea of class, and like they open the movie with the narrator, as as Heather said, is this preacher, and then we find out, oh, he's also the chauffeur driver, and then cut to the Rolls Royce, which is a very... Like, that's a hell of a car. That's not like, oh, he's got a nice Buick. Like, the man has a Rolls Royce. Like, that's a very specific visual message to send and you know there's so many moments like that where it's like the when you talk about his son at the party where it's like they they show this world of like obviously very wealthy people that Hess is very much a part of and they don't make it you know again nobody has to stop and make a big speech about it it's just you see it you see that world you see him and his son just going straight into let's speak some French for a while and how's school going and whatever and you know how are things with your obviously rich mom and whatever like it's it's all like they, they do just, again, such a great job of touching on this stuff without beating it over. You know, we don't beat over the head with it. Yeah, it just is. This is just, this is the world that he lives in. And he's not, he's not of the people like the, the hooker and the pimp that we're going to meet later on. He's not of the people of even the, the church that he goes to. I mean, he, you know, he pretty, pretty anti-religious quite often. He's just like, hey, nobody can tell me what to do. I don't need any of this kind of stuff, though. I mean, crosses are everywhere in this film and just one of those, like almost play game of spot the cross kind of thing. I mean, Heather, to your point, there's all of the artwork that goes throughout this whole thing as well. And then just reading, you know, like, oh, well, this painting here is like this and here's the statue and here's the history of this. I mean, and gun is not just like, oh, well, that looks like a pretty picture. It's like, no, no, he knows what he's doing with all of this stuff. And so, and when it comes to like the Christian imagery, it's just like, oh, well, even look at this, here's this, you know, this painting where you have these three figures in it. And then we're going to get this tableau of Hess and Ganja and their house guests that he then has her feet on later on. It's like, 
all of this stuff is tying together. It's very, very smart the way that he put all of this together. And it's just, you know, you, you can feel the attention to detail in this movie when you're watching. And it's not like to, to your point, Leon, it's not, he's not beating us over the head with like, look how smart I am. It's like, no, you can just feel it. Like it's woven into the tapestry of this movie, the intelligence behind it, the intelligence of our characters, the intelligence of the people behind the camera. It just makes a lot of, of really good points and a lot of sense as you're watching this. And I also like that it's a very challenging film. Like I talked about how you, you know, you're tricked by those title cards and things. And there's a lot of moments where it's like, is this the future? Is this the past? Is this going on right now? Just the way that things are moving around. There's a lot of dream imagery. So is this a dream? Is this reality? He just let this movie wash over you a few times and gets better every single time that you watch this because you can see, oh, this ties to this ties to this. And it's almost good that I'm in this state where I'm confused about which version I'm watching. It just means that I've seen it enough where it's just kind of like seeped into my bones a little bit. Yeah, it stays with you. And, you know, when we when I said at the top about like black exploitation at its best, again, like this class stuff is like. We're talking, this was made in what, 1972? Like, black actors were fighting each other just to play drug addicts in any movie. And so to make a movie that without comment has this main character who's wealthy, obviously educated, you know, just walks around speaking French, like is, is a very like upper class character. And they don't comment on that. They don't, they don't, you know, there's no explanation really, except that he basically lives in a castle and has this very classy life and he has servants. And like, that was a hell of a thing to do in 1972 to just even put that on a screen. We don't hear any. And, and to me, this was kind of nice because again, this film doesn't really go the obvious route as we've been talked about, but like there's nobody says any racial epithets. And unless I missed one, but I feel like there's so many films like, you know, and there are certain even modern day filmmakers who, who like to use a lot of racial epithets in their movies. And I won't name any names, but they might rhyme with Tint and Tarantino. Was that? <laughs> Never heard of them. I know, yeah, he's underground, very underground. But um, yeah, so it's kind of nice, like to be like, I mean, obviously, you know, I mean, the, yeah, obviously, I exist. But it's like sometimes you don't have to go that route. Like you can kind of be more subtle and and just not just have everything so on the nose. You have me thinking that even even in the the scene with the the pimp and and the sex worker, I don't think there's even any particularly raunchy language in that exchange. Yeah, you know, but you you know exactly what's going on and just the yeah yeah that bar oof that bar was so i was surprised we didn't see a sign for schlitz that was a schlitz bar i know a lot of people have a lot of problems with the old amos and andy tv series but one of the things i really liked about that well first off it was fucking funny as hell the our, our three main characters plus lightning i mean they were amazing but I love that they lived in a world where it was black judges, black ambulance drivers, black this, black that. I mean, everybody in the show was black as far as I remember. I don't remember, and it's been a long time since I've seen it, but I don't remember very many, if any, white people at all. And it was just kind of this nice world where it was just like, oh, yeah, like if you're black, you can beat anything in this world. And it's just like, it was so nice that that, that was the case. Like when, you know, when Kingfisher and, and, he must get in trouble or whatever. They go in front of a black judge with a black 
jury with a black bailiff, you know, it was like, oh, wow. Okay. This is kind of cool. Like you can be whatever you want. So, and it feels like this is kind of that world as well. I mean, there are some white people, but they're very minimal. You know, you get like the one guy with Jack Sargent, I think it's the character's name. And you see him more in dream sequences than I think that you interact with this guy. And there are a few other white characters like at the party scene and stuff. But again, this is a very black world. Even when the ambulance shows up later on and you get that amazing Haitian ambulance driver who just kind of butchers the English language when he's trying to like deliver his lines. He's, he's amazing. I love that guy. But it's just like, okay, yeah, we, we live in this world where you can have this very affluent black guy who knows French, who writes books, who travels to wherever he wants to travel to. He knows his business and he's just like, he's very secure. I mean, I hate that he has that line about, you know, I don't want the police knocking on my door type of thing. Cause it still shows that this is that type of world where that is a threat. And I hate that there are any threats towards Hess or Ganja or anybody else in this world of Ganja and Hess. But it's still like, like I said, it's, it's well done. And that's a savvy thing for him to say. Like, that's a really, I love that moment because you just get this great little peek and they're like, he knows what his reality is and he has a handle on it. And again, he doesn't have to make a big speech. He has to say that in a way the other guy understands him completely. Like, I, I love the way that that whole bit is delivered. I mean, Dwayne Jones. Oh my God. So good. I mean, and for folks that are listening at home that may not remember, Dwayne Jones is our hero from Night of the Living Dead, which just, again, completely puts everything on its ear, where it's a black guy who is the one who's in charge, is saving everyone, trying his best to keep the world you know, together, and then gets killed by a redneck at the end after he survived like the zombie apocalypse. Thanks for the spoiler, Mike. Oh, my bad. Oh, shit. I was going to watch that movie for the first time ever. Yeah. Well, it's a good thing there hasn't been any remakes or films inspired by it. That's true. That's true. It's a very obscure genre. Super, super obscure. Um, In case in point, two very different roles, though, like, which is just a testament to how great, like, this guy is. And, you know, the thing with Hess, too, and, and this maybe like, I think, lends to his like his like kind of nuanced performance here is that Hess is so lonely. Like he lives in this huge, gorgeous estate. It's just him and Archie until Ganja shows up and I guess whatever victim occasionally shows up. But like his son doesn't live there. I mean, even after him and and Ganja to marry, I mean the son's not at the wedding. Like they have a poolside wedding and this sad, melancholy kind of ceremony with this dirty pool with leaves in it i'm like nobody could take a skimmer to that you know his son isn't even mentioned like Ganja's like a stepmom and doesn't even probably know it and it's and it's like it's just so like it's almost like just like the sad lonely man that lives in the country and then it's like well and at first you know before i realized the timeline of things i just thought well maybe that's because he's a vampire you know because it's like if you if you know you have an addiction especially the one that's making you kill people or kind of forcing to have to kill people. Yeah, you love your family enough to maybe be like, I'm going to distance them. I don't want them to see me like this. I don't want this shit near them. But but then it's like, well, no, he's... Then I realized the timeline and I'm like, no, he's just he's just kind of an, an introverted, kind of insular figure with these weird dreams. Because yeah, like there's the Jack Sargent character and like he 
that that whole sequence, like he's wearing a silver mask and other people are wearing like these silver sort of masquerade masks, which is very surreal and sort of, but that sort of line of surreal where it feels like things are, it's that edge where it could get really sinister. It doesn't quite, but it paints some shadows for sure. I also love that they're married for about five minutes before they go straight to polyamory. Uh, what was the 70s? <laughs> They're just like, cool, what's next? Let's go find this guy. Let's go have a key party. <laughs> Threesomes were really big in Gunn's work. I mean, that's it's really at the heart of Stop as well as all this whole thing of will they, won't they kind of thing with, again, two men and a woman type of thing. And in that, it's very... It's very Radley Metzger. It's very score with like, oh, let's mix and match the way that we're going around with these couples here. And yeah, the the way that he kind of forces, forces, quote unquote, with the way that he puts her in this situation, let's say, and the way that, you know, she's not comfortable with feeding and all these things. I mean, we're talking about pairing up of stuff. This kind of reminds me of the hunger a little bit with this whole, like the Clifty Young and Susan Sarandon thing, where it's just like, you really need to feed. Let me give you this person that you really cared about in your life. She doesn't care about this guy at all, but just like this whole, like, okay, now, you know, I'm putting you in this awkward situation where you're thirsty all the time. You're cold all the time. I can give you the thing that's going to cure what ails you, which is blood. So here, you know, here's your, your first victim. Let's go to it. And none of these kills are, you know, crazy with like gore and, violence and things like that i mean it's very low-key and i love when she's got like the scratch marks on the guy's back and she's licking at the blood there i mean it's great and then we've got the symbols for blood as well with like her with the red flower in front of her mouth and everything oh man some beautiful beautiful imagery in this movie even with like the sexuality of it it's not it's not really that explicit and i mean as far as nudity goes i mean we realistically we see more male nudity that we do female and which I appreciated and not just because I'm <laughs> a bad just for any prurient reasons. It's just it's so rare. It's so rare to see that even now. Like, I mean, it's it's easy as pie to find, you know, any sort of R-rated movie with, you know, boobs, boobs ahoy, you know, or but the minute you have male nudity, you know, you start getting MPAA interference and plus like I there's sort of this very heteronormative thing of like male heteronormative where it's like well the naked woman is beautiful and two lesbians are beautiful of course if they're femi not actual like lesbians that could be very gender fluid it's gotta be like two like playboy looking girls but naked men ooh, you know it's, it almost feels like that where we have none of that in this universe and i love that it's it's just and the nudity is not like a big deal either it feels very almost like more european in the way it's handled than than certainly an american filmmaker of this era well, speaking of male nudity, I'm so curious what you guys think about the end of this film, because we, we've we got the guy who comes out of that dirty pool and goes running across the field, and we've got uh, Ganja alone at the very end of this film, because we should probably also talk about how Hess eventually finds the cure for vampirism, which is to... I mean, I'm not going to say it in the exact same way that he does, but it's basically to accept the God that he's turned away. And so he goes to a revival, very, very, very blues brothers esque, right? I mean, just the way that Jake is being, you know, kind of exercised by James Brown. I mean, it's almost the exact same scene. Not really. Instead, 
it's it's this great great revival scene and just the again sam wayman up there as the priest and just casting out devils and and having hess accepting god into his heart and i'm not sure exactly what happens after that though i mean it's one of these like again this is more of a mood piece so i'm just like well i think i understand that he's now cured but he might also be dead at the same time yeah that's a little vague and I feel like that part goes on a long, long time, but I'll tell you what I love about the church stuff. They open with the church stuff, and then there's a real climax is is him going back to the church, and they're all shot. Like, it looks like a documentary. It's, you know, again, back to that era of of what, like, lower-budget film looked like and what film in general looked like. Like, I think there's actually hair in the gate. If you're familiar with that term, mm-hmm. like there's actually like it's just got this look like somebody just I wouldn't be surprised if they just walked into that church and were like, can we film your service today? Because it's that real. And I I think that really lends something to it. There's not a, it's not a big stagey production version of of that of that church ceremony. It's it feels like you're right there down in it. Right down to like the detail. There's like in the beginning where you see the church service, there's like a kid, like a little boy asleep. One of the empty, like, pack pews, which I thought that was, well, that was a nice little kind of true to life detail. Um, that boy, if I think if my, if the churches I were exposed to as a kid had been like this, I would have been less of a heathen because the, the music is so good. Like, Sam, Sam Wayman is, I mean, oh, I mean, it's almost, I mean, you know, Chad, my husband at one point was like, he's like, this is almost like rock and roll gospel or something because of the energy to it and just so fun and just so emotional and, and just beautiful. And like, you could, you could be a complete not religious person and feel like, wow, this is, this is awesome. This is really, really good. Yeah. I mean, I've been to like some Baptist services and funerals and things. And those are the kind of thing where just like, I could see myself coming to this just because it's more like a, an event, almost a, not necessarily a party, but just like a happening man. Like one of these things where it's just like, wow, this is, you know, yeah. The, the, the pageantry, the, 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 the music, the, all the women with fans and things like that. And just the outfits. I mean, everybody was, when I went to the services that I went to, everybody's dressed to the nines and it's just like, wow, this is amazing. And yeah, that, that, that same energy comes through with this where I'm just like, wow, yeah, this is, this is amazing stuff. And then you see, you know, when Hess gets up there, I'm just like, yeah, whatever's going on with him man, give me some of that. That's what I want. And maybe you can help me here. I'm not completely clear on what happens at the climax of that event, I think he goes home and then does he die? And does he die because of the cross? Like I, I'm a little, I'll be honest. I got a little confused there. Feels like he dies. Mm-hmm. That's what it feels like. That was my takeaway too, especially because when he's reading from a book earlier where he's like, I think I found what can destroy us. There's this whole lie about the shadow, like basically the symbol, you know, which in this case, the cross that is, an implement i'm gonna butcher this i hate this but basically an implement of like whatever god you're believing in of a destruction but it's also a symbol of the faith casts a shadow upon your heart and you have that faith that is what can destroy you and the shadow is cast on his onto his heart which also now that i'm saying that makes me think there's a baja song called mask and there's this whole repetition of line the shadow was cast like something final has happened i don't know if that's connected but 
I'm just going to assume it is because Bahasts are goth. And what's more gothic than vampires? God. There's that connection to the hunger again, too. And of course, like, Ganja doesn't want to get in the shadow of a cross. She seems fearful, even though she seems also, like, not, you know, happy with her condition either. But, you know, she's not ready to, you know, which is understanding. I mean, understandable because it's like, you know, she's already adjusting to these changes. You know, maybe she's not ready to end her own life. I thought that was a nice twist, too, that she starts out getting a little bit pulled into it and then in the end is is like, well, no, I'm actually kind of down with this and let me just go pull this guy out of the out of the water <laughs> is my final act. Like she's and I, I think Heather's right. I'm not sure she's happy with it, but she's definitely not gone the way that Hess has gone. Hess seems much more tortured by this lifestyle and she seems like she's going to kind of roll with it for a while and see what happens. What's well, funny because we're talking about God and we're talking about a cross and basically it's like the cross in your heart. It feels very much like being stabbed with a stake kind of thing. Like that's what's going to destroy the vampire. So the line in the script was, if you worship any God whatsoever, and if you believe this God to be good, if this God in which you trust be destroyed by forces dangerous to the survival of love and it, the implement by which this God is destroyed, so thus the cross, for which this is the symbol of the destruction of life, does cast a shadow on the heart, then he shall be released into the bosom of his creator, having suffered and tasted the blood of the womb of nature, he may sleep in her lap forever. Amen, 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 amen. It sounds like he's destroyed at the end of it. Yeah, that, that was my sense. I was, was curious. It seemed a little open to interpretation, so I wasn't sure exactly what his final fate was. But hey, how about that ending, you know? Like, uh, yeah, you talking about the little kids singing, or no? I'm I'm talking that? about uh, <laughs> when when uh, is it from the pool where the the naked man emerges? Yeah, yeah. She goes to the window where she can see Archie's body. She looks from her window at the disappointment in the garden. Richard stands beside the body. He smiles at her window. Yeah, there's this whole thing about a naked man running across is not in the script here. So, which is not surprising because there's yeah. a lot of differences. Well, I, I will say if you see one slow motion swinging dick scene this year, make <laughs> it the end of Ganja and Hess. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Man, man, oh man. Um, it's like a pendulum. There's a line and Mike, I'm so glad you shared with us the video watchdog article which was great and had a lot of great information and detail. But at one point there's the phrase Ebony Tower, which I was kind of like, that, I don't know, it seemed weird to me. And um, Chuck was like, oh, was that about the pool scene without even hearing the context? Because of the guy, the guy is endowed to say the least. Like that's a hog leg. Like that is a, that is a massively, I'm not trying to be juvenile. I'm just pointing out, okay? It's like if Ushi Degard, you know, or Kit Natividad, if there was a female that jumped out of the pool naked and it's one of those girls, you're immediately going to be like, whoa, like those are, that's, <laughs> that's intense. And for a lot of reasons. But I love that. And also the look on his face, though, like he's very almost like, um, like feral. Like it's almost like he's definitely has more of a violent awakening that i think we saw with either ganja or Hess, which kind of makes you wonder like wow what is that what is that pairing going to be like what is you know what's that story there's so many sequels that get made that don't really you know aren't really stemming from unanswered questions 
But this would be one where I'd be like, man, I would, I'd be curious to see, you know, especially if it had been Bill Gunn and Marlon Clark. Obviously, I mean, Gunn, we lost him, as you mentioned earlier, Mike, to, you know, at a young age. So that's never going to happen. But, um, but it's a fun, it's a fun thought. It's a fun thought. I'm thinking that the guy that comes back is the guy that she drank from, from because it's that whole that, thing. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. There's that whole thing of like, he's still alive. He's still alive. It's like, no, 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 he's dead. And that really, that gets played up a lot more in the Spike Lee version, but this one, it's a lot more subtle the way that, you know, if you bite, it's that vampire lore. If you bite somebody, they come back type of thing, unless you do like the little girl in, um, uh, let the right one in where you just snap their neck. And then it's like, you turn the switch off after you bleed someone, then you had to snap their neck. So in case anybody listening is a vampire and your victims keep coming back, you just have to snap the neck, just make that disconnect there. That'll and do that too. I don't know if he can, this is a, it's an audio medium, but I'm snapping necks like crazy here. I'm doing a little Chewbacca type of thing here. So, so Mike, Mike, are you outing yourself as a vampire? No, no, not at all. <laughs> I'm just giving a word to to the listeners in case anybody is afflicted. That's that's see, that's the kind of PSA you're not gonna get from other film podcasts, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, and and vampires. Paul Shear would never tell you that on any of his podcasts, but me. I'm your buddy. I'm your pal. I'll let you know. Heck yeah. I can't wait for us to get Radu on this podcast. I love Radu. Yeah, take that, Mark Marin. I don't see you talking to Radu from Subspecies, Full Moon's hit franchise series. <laughs> the video watchdog article is fantastic. And I love that David quotes from the Village Voice obituary of Gun, where there's the line of imagine a world where Miles Davis was disallowed from recording after kind of blue or where Tony Morrison was only known as the author of the bluest eye. Again, I don't know if gun kept making films after Ganjin has what kind of cinema transformation would be there, but it's just, you know, you can only wonder. And by the way, that personal problems was 1980. He died in 89. That's why I had 89 stuck in my head there. So it would have been nice to find out. It would have been nice to see what he did. Like a lot of these people from that era, you know, you just, you wish they'd been handed a few more deals and just see what came of it, you know? Well, and even if Stop had a decent release, I mean, I remember years ago when Warner Archives first started, I was just like, oh, cool, Warner Archives, you guys can finally release Stop. And it was just like, oh, well, uh, I actually had a rep write to me and it was like, oh, no, well, you know, there's music rights. And I was just like, yeah, right. There's music rights. You guys probably don't even know where there's a print available out of it. The main reason that we even have this, this original edition of Ganja of Ganja and Hess is because of it being in MoMA. The par- there's a parallel with that because I immediately th- thought of Fred Halston, who was this pioneering avant-garde gay director. And the main reason we have uncut nice 35 millimeter prints of his films like L.A., um, LA plays itself, sex tool, and um ah, uh, why well, am I forgetting there's a third one? Ah, well those two for sure. <laughs> I've got the box set, but I haven't sat down and watched it. I them do yet. too. I do too. And I have watched I watched it like as soon as I got it, and it's been a few months. And after watching it, like LA plays itself and sex tool are so like impactful that it's you know, um, but you know, thank God for MoMA, but Fred Halstead himself donated those prints to MoMA. Like Fred knew, like, it's like he knew. And, you know, and thank God, like, same thing. 
thank God Bill Gunn, you know, donated this print to MoMA too. Because otherwise, I mean, you know, I mean, because look at Warner Brothers. They didn't even have the foresight to preserve stop any sort of real thing. That's a major company. So when you start dealing with like, Try to preserve films that are that are marketed towards grindhouses, adult theaters, or drive-ins, whatever. Then your the odds of it being like well preserved get significantly lower, and that's and that's a damn shame. Because think about just like, I mean, we shouldn't have films that are lost from the seventies or sixties. That's that's obscene. That's obscene. That's one thing for a film made in nineteen sixteen because the print exploded because it had literal nitrate in the print. Which that's still like heartbreaking, but I mean, it's just, you know, who could have foresaw that back then? For films to be, you know, that modern, to be missing is ridiculous. And especially with a filmmaker like Bill Gunn, who is so important. And not just because he's, you know, this vital African-American director, but because he's Bill Gunn. And this, you know, and made this incredible movie. It's, you know... It's like, it's, as if it's not bad enough, this guy was kind of shortchanged, or he was definitely shortchanged. But then on top of that, we don't even have his first film. Thanks, Warner Brothers. I'm sure like there's all kinds of bullshit that's preserved that they made sure got out. <laughs> but we don't have stop, you know, like any do. And I think I read, I don't know how true this is, that he got word that the print at MoMA was getting worn out and went back and demanded it back. Do you guys know this story? I think that was on the Wikipedia page. I don't know why someone would make that up, but that's a funny detail if it's true. That he donated the film and then found out the only print was getting too worn out and went and took it back. If, if it's true, that's a baller move. He was a baller. He was really a baller. That whole thing where he basically told the guys that were producing it, just like he raised hell and they're just like, hey, man, you know, like stop acting crazy. And what was the line? Something like, I got a whole drawer full of crazy you haven't even seen yet. And I'm just <laughs> like, all right, man, way to go. I'm sorry. I just swarmed. That was <laughs> such a great line. <laughs> well, so many people who we wish we could have seen them do a little more. In a similar vein, I think about how experimental this movie is in terms of the unreality of certain parts and, and the sort of the mistiness, as Heather said, and the general arty experimental quality of it. I think about how hard a movie like this would land if it came out like on streaming now. Cause I'm sure at the time, if you went to the drive-in, there was probably a certain percentage of people that were like, I thought this was going to be Blackula too. <laughs> I don't know what this is. And like, I feel like one of the great things about like the era we're in now is you could put out something that will immediately get a certain niche following. And I could see people just really latching on to the more kind of non-linear magical elements of this and just instant cult classic i feel like if he'd had the chance to make more stuff like this you know it'd be it'd be a huge hit now and i have to say too that blood couple as it exists and you can find that out on youtube it's not too hard to find uh out there at least right now at the time of this recording um i have to say it's not one of these like oh my god what did they do to my boy kind of thing and it's just it's not this abomination of oh gosh how could they do this there's actually like they they took all of the original footage and recut that rather than this just being a, a pare down of ganja and hess so there are a lot of alternate takes different shots yeah, of course, there's stuff that's cut out. They cut out the, the bathtub toothbrushing thing. Like, they just have them in the bath, but they don't actually show them, like, using the water. So, thank God for that, right? That's That immediately takes it from an X down to an R. Um, but there's a lot of other things that they'll, like, 
flip in a couple shots or lines or or just like change music cues. So it's a really it's a full redo of the film. And I have to say, I didn't mind watching it. I actually had a pretty good time watching the alternate version. I don't know if I watched Ganjin Hess like a hundred times and then watched Blood Couple, if I'd be like, oh God, what are you doing? They're missing this. They're missing that. I have to say it's just a different take on stuff. Yeah. They're trying to be a little bit more exploitative as far as like some sex scenes and stuff. But again, it's not like, it's not like when we talked about like massacre at central high, where it's just like, oh, here's this insert shot from this Italian version that just gets stuck in here. We're going to add sex scenes all over the place. It's not like they're just like, let me find another pair of, of African-American female boobs. And I'll just like stick these in anytime, you know, ganja's on screen. Oh my God. You know, that perspective is really everything, Mike. I'm so glad because I, at first I was a little, because I really like Ganjan Hess was, is such a special movie to me. And, you know, and watching some of the clips from Blood Couple, I was a little more like, some of the extra deleted scene stuff was cool, but I was like, Blood Couple? Uh, but then like you pointing out Massacre of Central High. Yeah. Blood Couple is the best title in the world compared to Sexy Jeans. Yes. Which is what the Italians called Massacre of Central High. I'm still like, are you shitting me? Sexy Jeans? I mean, not since. Because I was thinking about like samples of filmmakers who make these really beautiful, like very like heart like from the heart movies that are very just like their own creations like auteur to 100 and then have them get messed with and i was thinking of like how like sean roland made lips of blood which is in a lot of ways his masterpiece and it was a very personal film to him and it make any money and the producers or I believe as the producers made him shoot hardcore things to insert it so they could get some money out of it and it had to be retitled like stuck me vampire which is awful and lips of blood is such a sad movie like it's it really does not make sense to have. i mean it had sex in it but it, again like ganjin has a sex in it too but i mean yeah having hardcore inserts would just ruin it would just yeah time and place kind of thing um one thing that you guys like got me thinking about too is like how this era this was a very like fascinating year because sometimes you would have filmmakers who were definitely like, you know, like, you know, not given a lot of opportunities because of like race or gender or sexuality. Like, you know, it's, you know, you could have Fred Halstead work. I mean, I think he would have worked as an adult because that's, it was Malou, but also it's like, Holly, you know, like somebody wasn't going to give a guy like Fred Halstead, who's this very openly political out you know, sadomasochistic gay artists. Like, they're not going to give that guy a chance. But, like, but even, you know, the people that were able to, because, like, the Velvet Vampire, that's Stephanie Rothman. And that's another vampire film that takes kind of some twists on the tropes and also has some very kind of, like, ethereal dream sequences and definitely some, I think, some comments about gender. I don't know. Again, like, I think Ganjin has its own beast and I love it for it. But it's, but it's kind of interesting. I feel like the 70s, like, a lot of films that kind of did we're almost like undercover art house because, you know, distributors will be like, oh, well, we can't sell this to an art house, but we can sell it to a grind house. We can sell it to a drive-in. And that's why it's always good to kind of, that's why I've always been fascinated by the little nooks and crannies of cinema is finding those gems. So let's go ahead and take a break. And we're going to come back with a pair of interviews. First up, we'll hear from Bill Gunn's friend and collaborator, Sam Wayman. After that, we'll hear from the author of Bleeding the Blood, Bill Gunn's Ganjan Hess. Christopher Seeding, and we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. 
If you're interested in topics such as cryptids, airline crashes, aliens, true crime, technology, conspiracy theories, disasters, paranormal activity, religion, science, and pop culture, then That Sorta Weird might be a podcast you'll want to add to your library. The new That Sorta Weird podcast explores all these topics and more while trying to be informative, critical, and humorous. Your hosts, Mike and Iris, have worked together in the podcasting space for over a decade now and have a unique chemistry, one that just might draw you in and make you laugh. New episodes of That Sorta Weird drop every two weeks and can be found on Apple Podcasts and all other podcast delivery systems. If you're old school and listen from your desktop PC, just head over to thatsortaweird.com to listen to new and archived episodes. So fire up your favorite pod app and search for That Sorta Weird to subscribe and listen today. Get ready for nonstop action with Little Dixie, now streaming on Redbox. Frank Grillo and Eric Dane star in this revenge thriller, an ex-Special Forces operative caught in the crossfires of a corrupt governor and a ruthless drug lord fights to take down the cartel. Stream Little Dixie instantly on Redbox On Demand today. Rated R from Paramount Pictures. Can you tell me a little bit more about your past and how you got involved with music? I've been playing since I was age three. Uh, my mother told me that when I came out of the womb, the next day she knew I was walking up to, the, up to the piano and saw playing. That was age three. Of course, my sister Nina was playing at age three as well. But that was the introduction. I had to have to say that I got it through a birthright because my mother can play piano. My father can play piano. All eight brothers and sisters play piano. And all eight brothers and sisters sing as well. I am the last born. I guess my musical journey from there, from what I understand, I took lessons from Mrs. Mazinovich, the same teacher that taught Nina. She's a German lady in North Carolina. It was very grueling, I have to tell you, because I got very angry. I wanted to be outside and play with my friends. And, of course, I had to practice the scales. I had to do all that stuff when I wanted to play outside. But my mother, my mother was a minister. She was a very sophisticated, intelligent preacher. She said, no, you got to go practice. So I would practice four or five hours a day. Every day, my fingers would be bleeding on the keyboards. But that's where it started. I, did, I didn't realize that I had talent. You know, when you're that young at three, you, you know you can do something, but you don't appreciate its value. It wasn't until later on I understood that this was important. My mother, she drilled it into us. Practice, 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 play, play, play. Even though all eight of us could play, and I'm the baby, I think she, I guess all last borns of this way, the parents put all of their hopes and dreams and things of that nature. Not all of them, but they put a lot of their, their expectations into the baby, you know. And she did with me. And I have to say, that's what motivated me. And I'm glad she did, because now I can play the piano. <laughs> that that was part of my musical. That's, that was the beginning. And then, I, and then I went on from there and played in a lot of churches. I played in schools. When I was in the Army, I, at Fort Hood, I started a Fort Hood Glee Club kind of thing. Anything that had to do with music or James Brown, this, I was in North Carolina at the time, and if James Brown or the Temptations came to town, 
I would sneak out of the window and go through the woods to go to see them play and come back. And I'm thinking I'm sneaking into the house and my mother's sitting there waiting for me. <laughs> that was funny. She said, you thought you got away with it. I said, Mom, I, you know, I, because she was a preacher and we had Bible class all the time. And I didn't want to go to Bible class. I wanted to go and hear James Brown. <laughs> It's much more fun, but my musicality took on that kind of a texture. It took on that kind of journey. And then I went to Lane College in Jackson, Tennessee, and um, at first that my music, I didn't, I, I didn't have a major in music. I had a major in interesting business administration and contracts, and which I find very strange for me. But I could do a lot of things because I've been a Southern boy. I was a Southern gentleman. My father was a my father was a minister, but he was also a handyman. He started the very first dry cleaning black black jock cleaning business in Tryon, North Carolina, and he was the first one there at barbershop in Tryon, North Carolina. So I would say that my musical journey. Uh, oh, I did wear this South Carolina, and I had a very high first tenor voice, very high, very high. And so Mrs. Williams, she was my music teacher at, at Chesney High School. That lady, I love Mrs. Williams. She was as big as the house. <laughs> she was so big. And I loved her. She loved me. She trained me. She found out where my vocal cords were, where, how I could use them, the breathing. And we went on to win the South Carolina, South Carolina Championship at the best high school B club. I, I don't know what the title officially is, but you know, you get where I'm coming from. It's the thing I had to do with music. It made me feel more whole, made me feel more that that was my calling. I knew that it was a gift. I knew that because I had extraordinary hearing. I could go to the piano and play anything that I heard. I didn't know what that was physiologically or metaphorically or intellectually or all of that stuff. All I knew was I played what I felt. And I understood that that is the key to everything, is to express what you feel, even if you don't understand it. And I didn't understand it in the level that I do now, of course, but I realized it made me feel a certain way. It made me feel good. It made me feel strange it made me feel powerful to myself that could do that and i've learned i did learn early on that if you heard something if you hear something you should be able to play it and that that, that was the coalition i made i said we're on the move if i can and i realized i've been doing that all along i heard songs i couldn't read music i i mean as i got older i began to read music but but the fact that i could play it I think was the most extraordinary thing for me. And my mother sat me down one day and she said to me, son, there's three things you must learn. Hey, God gave you a gift, she would say to me. And she said this to all the children anyway, uh, and particularly to my sister Nina as she got older. But she said it to me as a young boy, don't misuse it, don't abuse it, or you will lose it. Those three things, and I never forgot it, ever, to this day, it's my guiding post. And I repeat, and I teach music now, and I, and I teach it to my students, and I say the same thing all the time. People have heard me say that a lot. 
And I understand that. And she said, because if you do, if you do misuse it, if you do abuse it, you will lose it. And to me, that makes sense. And that, that doesn't necessarily have to be in a religious way. It's just common sense. You know, any craft you have or any skill you had, have, if you do misuse the skill and abuse it, you could lose it. That made rational sense to me. What were your first paying gigs like? How did you break into the actual business of music? I don't want to say the churches that I played in or the, or the schools that I played in because they were, if you play in a church, you might get $50. You know, that's not, I don't consider that um, professional in, in the sense that you're asking it. But those little gems prepped me for my eventual purpose in life. And my first serious paying gig professionally was in 1961 at the Village Gate in New York. And that was with, as people know her as Nina Simone, I knew her as Janice Wayman. That's where I met and became friends with, thank goodness for that. That's where I met Mel McCabe, Odetta, Humasha Keeley, Miles Davis, Max Lewis, and Richie Havens. That was the beginning of my professional career. And I have to tell you that the rest is history. Because, and can I tell you how I got to the Billy Gate? Oh, please, yeah. Because I could do a lot of things. Now, I had graduated from Levittown Business College. And so I had gone to Maine College for two years. And only a two-year program. Then I left Lane in Jackson, Tennessee. And I came, we had moved to Philadelphia. It was one of Philadelphia, West Philly. And I became a welder. And that sounds weird because... Why would I become a welder if I'm playing? I gotta watch my hands. But I was good at it. I was working for New York ship in Camden, New York. Welding, and I was welding car frames and window frames, et cetera. And one day my sister called me, I'm from New York, and she said, um, Sam, I, I want to take you out to lunch. Now, remember, she's in New York, and I'm in Philadelphia. I'll be there in an hour. And I said, What are you talking about? She said, I'm taking you out to lunch. Even it's like 10 o'clock. My sister rented a helicopter. Oh, yes. <laughs> she, rented, she rented a helicopter at $500 an hour and flew down to Philadelphia. And I'm talking to her on the phone at 10 o'clock and, and we're going out to lunch at 12. I said, I hope I'm not, I'm probably exaggerating the time frame, but that's the way it was. It was quick. And uh, she took me out to lunch and she said, I will you, 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 okay. perform with her and be by my side. I need my family. I bought my brother. And remember, I'm the baby of the brother of the family. I was spoiled, but everybody loves Sam. Well, they call me Sammy, which I don't like, but everybody loves Sam. And, and I thought about it. I said, well, let me give you an answer tomorrow. She said, okay. And then she left. She flew back. She said, to New York. I called her up that evening, and I said, sure. And this was my opportunity for being, because first of all, Nina and I were very close. We were very, really close. And uh, I said, yeah, it would be fun. She said, yes, it would be fun, but I want you to be by my side. I don't trust anybody. She didn't. And I trust you. You're my baby brother, and I knew you loved me, and I knew you would protect me. And I said, well, okay, I'll be there tomorrow. So I took the train up from New York, from after an effort to New York, and this was like coming up. I don't know, it might have been on a Wednesday. And that first gig was that Friday because it was sold out. 
for three weeks in advance at the British Gate. It was sold out from Tuesday to Sunday for three weeks. My first gig was on that stage at the British Gate. That was my first paying gig. Now, I could play Hammond organ, so I played Hammond organ, you know, with the foot pedals and that crazy book. I did that. I was perfect. I played tambourine, malacres, and toys, and I sang. And and that was when the scene I first became a team or a duo on stage. Most people today, not too young to know what it was like then, but that's the way um, I cut my teeth, I would say, on show business. And the rest is history. And that was my first paying serious, my first seriously paying gig. Did I read right that you and Nina lived around the corner from Malcolm X and Betty Shabazz? Oh, yes. That Malcolm X was a friend once. And I have to tell you, I don't want to mislead people. We were not best. We were not the, he was not like my running buddy, nothing like that. But we, he and I became friends. And Betty Shabazz, and we only lived like three blocks from each other in, in Mount Vernon, New York. He would come over to the house and and with his bodyguards and his sofas and thinking it would with bodyguards and come to the house and want to talk to Nina. And Betty Shabazz would come over. It seems at the height of the civil rights movement. I was very much involved in protest, as you probably know, then he said to me. But I remember my first sit down with Malcolm X, and I had a lot of nerves. <laughs> I really had a lot of nerves to do with that, I was about to tell you. But he knocked on the door, and there was his bodyguards were standing behind him. And he knocked on the door, and Nina was upstairs doing makeup or something. And it was be there. And I answered the kitchen door, and I said, "Yeah, who is it?" And he said, "It's Malcolm X." I said, I said "Oh, okay. Um, just a minute, please." <laughs> and I opened the door. <laughs> I opened the door, and he's standing there with his two bodyguards, and he says, "Um, it's Mr. Lono." I said, oh, Mr. Dad. <laughs> he turned around. I said, yes, she is. I said, would you like to come in, please? And um, he turned around to his bodyguards and said, okay, you all can leave now. Now, the, the garage and the driveway was a little walking distance from the house. She had to walk through a garden to get to the house. So he told me to go back up there and sit and wait for him to finish. They sit in the limousine, and uh, he would let them know when he's ready. So he came inside. And I set him down in the living room, and we sat on the sofa, and Nina yelled downstairs and said, who what, who what? Um, and he yelled up, oh, to me, Malcolm X. And, and he said, uh, Nina said, okay, I'll be right down in a few minutes. Have you met my brother? And he said, yes. She said, well, okay, well, talk to my brother. I'll be down in a short bit. So we sat on the sofa, and I was sitting next to him. To imagine that's going to be my little cleansing mind. I'm sitting and saying, I'm sitting, this is me talking to my mind, right? I'm sitting here next to Malcolm X. It's I that, you know, I relax. And I, he says, you know, and he looks at me, he says, you look just like your sister. And I said, well, that's good to know because we should. I said, look like her. And he laughs. And I looked at him and I said, you know, Malcolm X, can I ask you a question? And he said, sure. I said, do you ever get tired of being Malcolm X? And he looked at me, he said, nobody asked me that question before. He said, yeah, I don't want to be, Mal be Malcolm X to have people know me all the time. And I said, well, do I have to call you Malcolm X? 
Is there another name that I can that you would like? He said, you can call me Malcolm. And when I looked back on that, I was like, I kind of heavy that is. I said, okay, Malcolm. And he said, that, all right, you should hear that's fine. I like that. I don't feel like I'm under pressure. And I got that. I don't have to be something that people expect me to be. I could just be me and be whatever the moment calls for. And a couple of seconds went by, and he yelled up, are you coming down? She said, yes. You know how women are, they take forever, he said. I said, yes. And then he said to me, and this is the honest-to-God truth. I'd be a monkey's uncle if I was lying to you. He said, your sister warned me about you. She told me that you protect her and that if anybody, if you approve of whoever it is that wants to see her, it's okay. But that they would have to go through you. And he said, I can see why. Because you really speak your mind. Because we were looking at each other's eyes. I knew he was Malcolm X, but I was being myself. And I knew that my sister, I'm the baby in the family, but I wasn't looking like that. I was looking at the fact that that's my sister and I got to protect her. I don't care who you are. That was my mindset. Now, I did it with respect, but he picked up on that because he looked in my eyes and he said, yeah, you, you love your sister. You, 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 you are a brother. You're a family man. I said, yes, sir. I said, I don't want anybody to hurt my sister. She's my blood, period. She and I came out of the same wounds. And I know that she would want me to. But Aaron Malcolm, you are also Malcolm X. And I don't want to disrespect you. He said, no, you're not disrespecting me at all. As a matter of fact, you are respecting me by letting me know that you, no one, even I, can't get to her unless you think that we are worthy of it. And I said, yeah. You know, and and that was my introduction to Mr. To Mr. <laughs> and of course, from that phone on, we became, I, I would say this, I was honored that he called me his friend. He said, you're a good friend. May I come and visit you, you know, many more times? I said, yes, sir, you can. He said, good. And his wife, Betty Shabazz, of course, was Nina's, one of Nina's girls, one of the lone girls, as they say down the age. But they were the best of friends. And he would come by every once in a while. He would sit out in the garden and would talk. He wanted to meet with Nina because he wanted to convince her to join his movement. He wanted her to be the face of one of his movements, the uh, 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 Muslim Party, extending because of the civil rights police. And that's the reason why he was courting her to do that. And she came downstairs eventually and said, and of course she stood on the stairs looking like a queen, and she said, um, did you meet my brother? And he said, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I met your brother. And she said, okay, you see everything I told you we got to eat? Now, I, know, I know it sounds like I'm, I'm ego flashing here. I'm not, but this is how she gets to. And he asked like Luke, and he said, yes, I can see why you said that, Nina. He's not going to let anybody get close to you. And then she looked at me and said, well, what do you think of him? Oh. I said, he's cool. Well, we didn't use the word cool then. The cool was just, that's a new slang. I said, he's all right. He, he's good. And he laughed. He did word like, yeah. It was like a laugh of, how can you describe it? He's a la- it was like a laugh of approval. Well, he thought, it was like a laugh of, that's cool. You know, and, and today's slang, it, it would be, he met my approval, which meant 
everything was all right. Now he could be himself. And and then they shut down and talk, and I left the room. And I've had many meetings like that, many little encounters with him at Kent Generate. Betty Shabazz, yes. Betty Shabazz, Odetta, Amir Michaela, Michaela, were the frequent visitors to the uh, to our house because I lived with Nina and Marbla and at the time. You know, we traveled together, we toured together, etc. That was the time I had with those are a few moments, and that was my introduction to meeting Malcolm X. And I'm proud of that because I haven't told all the stories that he and I exchanged the opinions, but that's just my first introduction to him. And I realized the importance of it later on and how he regarded me in his, in his mind as a person that he could trust. And I do remember he did him coming by the house at one point saying to me that he was glad that he met me, that he was honored to have met me, that he could see why I was with Nina. And since he was about family and he was about brotherhood and he was about honesty and he was about justice and injustice, he could see the similarities in that. And he was thrilled by that. And he told me so. And he told Nina that. And she told me what he told her. So I felt, I felt like I was in good company. And I felt like I did the right thing. That I didn't, you know, that I didn't misbehave. I was not a bad boy. I was good. Were you a bad boy often? Yes. I like to say there is bad, good boy, and there's good, good boy. I was, I was a good, bad boy. And in other words, I, I never bit my tongue. If somebody asked me something, don't ask me if you don't want to hear the truth current thing. I didn't care whether you liked it or not. I mean, I would not deliberately try to dis- disrespect you, or I-, I didn't want to be a jerk or something, but don't ask you a question if you didn't want me to give you where I really felt. I would not curtail my expressions of my feelings just to make you feel good. It was known for that, and I guess I still am to this day. But the way I said it, the way of keeping yourself free I don't suffer from any stress. I don't have any of those things because I'm not able to express myself about what I fear or see or envision. I couldn't be true to my art if I did that. That means to be a true artist means that you always have to be real with, with you. Within you, there has to be a sense of honesty, a sense of, of, of um, fearlessness. You, know, you have to challenge yourself. You also have to question your own insecurities, and be extremely honest with yourself. One of the things that I've learned about being a performer and being a composer, and, and that is have to always express the um, what I see, what I, what I envision, what I dream. I may not understand it, and I don't need to understand it to express it. There are things in life that you can do a lot of people go through life wanting to understand every iota of every movement, everything. They want to understand why it's there. Well, I don't need to understand that. I just need to know that it exists. And if I could be a partnership in that existence, let it be that it comes from my naivete, let it, let it come from my innocence of truth while I approach that particular moment, while I approach that sound or that voice. And, and since I'm a musician, I'm able to translate that into musical terms. For example, 
then you try to break it down. I don't want to get too intellectual with it, but like, for example, I, I'm a composer, which means, and I've composed music for Broadway, all Broadway, and movies, etc. A composer is different than a songwriter. I'm both a songwriter and a composer, but there is a distinct difference. Not every songwriter could be a composer, but most composers can be songwriters. And the reason for that is because writing music as a composer means you're writing music for the spoken word, visuals. You're writing music for a movement, items that are moving, or, or film. That's different. Not everybody can do that. If I'm in a room and they say there's, let's say there's a dinner going on, a fabulous dinner party going on, I could put music to the entire event and we're sitting there. And why is that? Because everything we do is musical. You and I talking right now has a rhythm to it. There's a pattern to it. There's a, and those patterns in, in our movement can translate to notes, tones, melody, at the right, a melody to our movement. And like, for example, we walk in rhythm. We talk in a rhythm. We make love in a rhythm. We eat in a rhythm. We laugh in a rhythm. Everything has a rhythm, and that rhythm can be uh, translated into a pattern. And if once you develop the pattern, then that pattern could be cut. You put the pattern into sequences. And those sequences become bars, like on a scale or on a, on a music page or on a score. That is my interpretation of how what I'm trying to describe for you. So to my ears and to my eyes, to my brain, all of that can become a score. I can go to the piano and write something. Like if you say, Sam, could you write music to our conversation tonight? I probably could. I could. It'd be my it'd be my interpretation of the pattern of our sequence of rhythm because the rhythm translates into tempo. A tempo. People who run. If you run, if you, if you run for a living, if you hunt, if you race for a living, if you play golf, whatever you do, everything has a rhythm to it. You just have to figure out what that rhythm is. And not everybody can do that. That's what I'm saying. Of course, that's that's not something that universally shared by everybody. Some of us have the ability to interpret that, and that's what I do. I'm an interpreter, and I'm also a messenger. So that stuff comes to me in my head, and I can go to the piano and write what I'm seeing in my vision. And that's what composers do. They have the ability to do that. I don't really want to understand why I'm given that gift. I'm not one of those kinds of people that say, oh, why me? I'm not a, oh, why me person. I'm glad it's me. Now let me use the me that I understand about me and express it. To me, the most important thing is that I can do it. Not necessarily in, in scientific terms, why. I don't really want to know why. I mean, having the knowledge of why I have this, how important is it in the scheme of things? That's what I look at. What does the knowledge of the why have to do with the how? and the doing of it and the execution of that. I'm not going to waste that my brain cells trying to figure out why me, because that's a waste of time. Why waste it? I'd rather use that energy utilizing the gift or the ability that I have. And that would explain, perhaps, the why. 
and being formed. The most important thing is to me is the end result of your work. Your work defines who you are. I was thinking this to myself earlier, to be that what did there are people who question what defines you. Well, is it you are or is it what you do? I say it's what you do that defines who you are. Not how, not who you are that defines what you do. That's my interpretation. And to me, that makes a lot of sense. What you do does define you. That in itself is an inertia. The simplicity of it. That's your, that, I know it's paradoxical. I know it can be a paradox. I understand that. But the difference between who you are and what you do depends on what you do. I mean, I can think I am... I can say to myself, I am a rocket scientist all day long. Does that make me a rocket scientist? No. But if I become a rocket scientist, that is what I do, then I am a rocket scientist. That That's that's my explanation. When did you start to explore that? When did you actually start to, to score things and to write music? I've been writing since I was 15. But my first score was Garden Hess. Garden Hess was my first movie score. It was the first time when Bill Gunn asked me to like the music to Garden Hess. That was the first time I ventured out on that limb. And I asked him, and he and I were partners, like, because I'm the writer. I mean, I was, I was a typist. So I typed up all the scripts and and I, and I could read back there, what they call proofread his scripts, etc. And regardless of all the musical achievements and successes I've had, I'd never written a score. I, I said, to, I did say this to him. And this is the first time I said, as you the question, why me? I did ask him, why me? <laughs> I did. I said, why you? And he gave me a very good answer because I know you can. And I said, well, I've never written one before. He said, yeah, well, I had never written a book before until I wrote my first book. That makes a lot of sense to me. You, you, you know, you, how does anybody become anything that they do unless it, unless it has a beginning? You got to begin somewhere. You're not born being a You don't come out of the womb being a score. That was my first professional composition as, as a film score. And it was not that difficult, but it was a challenge. I don't want to be nice to myself. No, I'm not going to be nice to myself, but it, it was hard. And it was easy at the same time. It was easy because I knew music. It was challenging because I challenged myself. I ventured onto parts of my ability that had never been challenged before. That's how we become good at what we do or great at what we do or, or, or excel at what we do is to be challenged. And my my musicianship and my art was challenged. And I understood that. Apparently, Bill did too. What happened was, I enjoyed it. Once you love what you do, it ceases to be work, work. It seems it ceases to be boredom or virtual. It tends to be exciting, becomes fun. It becomes wonderful, it becomes joyful, it becomes painful. All of those above emotions. You know, I found myself liking what I was doing because I was a musician. And I knew that I could, and music was my glory. It was my gift. And 
It taught me a lot. Every job teaches you something. But Gaijin Hesh taught me so much about myself and by human nature. It also taught me to interpret people into music, musical tones. Watching, I was on the set every day. First of all, I typed the script that Bill wrote to live with the script. I knew you skipped backwards and forward. I was on the set all the time. I did not, I was not one of those composers where, like in, in, in traditional Hollywood, where the film is shot, burns, and then the composer walks in and sits and watches the screen and then writes, Yo, I love this, I love this score as we shot the film. I knew the concept of what I wanted. And Bill was wonderful to work with as a director because he gave me free reign. You write what you want to write. You write what you feel. That's why you're the composer and I'm the writer. But but the way I worked, I said, okay, like that. So what I'm going to do, Bill, I'm going to come up with ideas or concepts, and then I'm going to run it past you, and you tell me if you think I'm going in the right direction, then I could develop it further. He said, that's good. And that's what I did. In certain scenes, he had no clue what the music was going to be. His job was busy directing and and developing the characters and the rewrites. He left that fa- the sound part up to me because he knew that he and I connected. I was connected to that script. I lived that script. Breathed, I wore, I ate. I did everything with that script and, and, and the characters and the actors. That's how I was able to feel comfortable with the score that I wrote. It was interesting because at certain times, I would be very nervous. I would say to Bill, I would say to myself, well, I don't know. If he got to like this, I think this is right. Well, he trusted, he, he trusted my instinct as an artist from one professor to another. I was only 20, well, 21, 22, 23, whatever was that. So it was a challenge. It's what I wanted in life. It's what I needed. Clearly, I needed that to feel myself and to have confidence. It was a confidence builder. When you have confidence with your talent, oh, there's no limit to where you can go. No limit. And I knew that this was my calling. I'd always known that I was a musician. I knew that I had very good ears. I knew that he had things. I knew I had perfect pitch. I knew I could, when it came to music, that, that was my milieu. That was the place. That's where I belonged. But I never writing the score was my testing ground. And I treated it as such. I did what I could do. I did the best that I could do. And that was all that was needed of me. He said to me, it's like what he said to me, and I said to him, I thought he was made, I thought he was really made, I thought he was a genius as a writer and had, and a great visionary that I told him so. And he said the same back to me. I love your music. I love the way you play. I love the way you sing. I love the way you interpret things. And that was enough for me. In other words, he trusted me. He had confidence in me. He trusted his soul and spirit with me to treat it with the same amount of respect and trust back at him. And I did that. That's what made the marriage work. That was my third time with Don Ginesh. How did you two meet? Well, we met at a film conference in New York City. Somewhere introduced me, and I, to this day, I don't know, I can't be precise, 
moment. I cannot remember the precise moment, but we met at film festival in Harlem at a screening of something. And I don't know what it was. And I heard him speak and I enjoyed his interpretation of something. And another friend of ours who was there said, I want you to meet him. And I met him and he, and he had known, he had met some musicians, star friends of mine, and we became friends because we kind of hit it off. And he told me he was writing a script, and I knew who he was. Um, I, had, I knew about Stock. I knew about his books. I knew he was a great writer. And I loved his writing, and I could relate to it. And, and so we became friends, and he wanted... He was very peculiar. He was very particular, very peculiar when it came down to choosing people that he wanted to work with. And fortunately for me, I was one that he liked, and and and, and it works. I mean, he chose me like I chose him. I, he said, "He said I chose you." I said, "Well, I chose you." <laughs> you know, so we kind of chose each other to work as partners and creative partners, and that's how it works. And we both, being people of color, we both relate to life to our our heritage and our culture. He was from Philadelphia. He was from a more middle, upper middle class background than I was, but that didn't separate the soulfulness of our experiences together. It didn't separate our warmth, our desires, and our struggles as, as people of color. Everyone, no matter what color you are, or what culture or race you are, all of us have something in common, and it has to do with living in life and survival and fighting for a certain rights within that cultural service, uh, within that cultural guidelines of trying to move forward and raise your family and share opinions and ideas to help change things for the better. I think every, I think every culture has that kind of revolutionary bunch of people who want to do things to make life better. I don't consider myself unique in that way. I just think that if all of us had some good in us that could bring about change and we try to implement that change, then that can make something better, no matter how small an accomplishment that may be. That's where he and I shared, we shared the same table in that report because we were people of color and we knew we were fighting institutionalized racism. You know, um, being a person of color, we don't like, I don't like, and I don't think people of color should be defined that the only thing we think about is race <laughs> and racism. That's not fair. That's not fair at all. Our culture is very multifaceted. It's multi-layered, multi-layered. It has many components, but every culture has that. There's, there's always the, the haves and the have-nots in every culture. It doesn't matter what, what color, pink, blue, yellow, brown, whatever color you are. That was my first time, back to the, the topic here. I relished the fact and I loved the fact that I needed to score. And so many people that helped me, my musicians, that is, to pray, the horn prayers and the tingle prayers, etc. They all shared the compassion and the passion for that music because they loved the script. 
and they love the images. I never dreamed that Garden Hesh would be accepted the way it is because we fought so hard and we were knocked down so hard to not get it done. We fought hard to make this, to breathe life into this body and we met resistance everywhere we went. I'm a man of good faith and I believe in perseverance. I believe in tenacity. I believe in following your dream and your vision. Do believe in, if you believe in something, go after it. I was taught that. And if all, all parents, and you, I'm sure you are, if you are a parent, you teach your children that if whatever you believe, follow it. Don't let anybody tell you you can't do this and you can't do that. If you believe that you can do it, you'll do it. Go after it. Make it happen. Make everything count. But that's what we did. But we were fighting an institution. Institutions are made up of individuals. But you put all those individuals together and they become a monster. You know, and we, we knew we were fighting the monster of, of um, discontent, monster of privilege, monster of arrogance, monster of superiority. Uh, we, we knew that we were fighting those vampires. And the issue the thing is the movie's about vampires, and you, so my thing was always we're fighting vampires who want to suck our blood. <laughs> You know, and that's a very strange dichotomy, but that's the reference. Here we are making a movie about vampires, and that's what we're being sucked about our own blood. They want us to demise us. They want us to just get rid of us. They're trying to suck out your identity. No, 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 no. I would not have any of that. And me being a country boy, I am a country gentleman, but no, no, no. My father taught me, don't let anybody push you down, don't let anybody make you feel less of a man, less of a person than you think you are yourself. I stood up for what I thought was right, and I cannot protest in the civil rights protest unless someone demean me or suppress or repress or oppress me. Then, then what am I saying? That means I'm being a hypocrite. It's not going to happen. If I have to stand on the mountain by myself, I'm going to do that. But I am not going to I am not going to sell out the values of what I need then just to make you feel better about yourself. You know, what does that make me? I can live with me in the morning. I got to wake up with me in the morning. And because my thing is this, if I, if I can wake up in the morning alive and not dead, then I did all right. I know I'm sick, but that's the way I like to look at it. As long as I wake up alive, I'm cool. Mr. Wayman, this has been fantastic. Are you welcome? You welcome. I know it was a blood. Oh, I know it was a blood. Yeah, I know it was a blood for me. Tell you that one day when I was lost. You know that he died upon the cross. You see that I know, I know, I know. Before I even start asking you about pleading the blood, I'm very curious about you and your career. And can you kind of tell me how you got into academia? Well, after graduating from St. Cloud State University in 1993, I was didn't really have a degree I could do anything with as far as getting a job. And I 
after a year of working menial jobs, I, I thought maybe I should, maybe I should get back into school and stay there as long as I can. Yeah. I went to, uh, uh, grad school in film studies at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. And I was, I got my PhD, taught a few years as visiting an assistant professor at uh, University of Notre Dame, which is where my wife still teaches. So she's up in Indiana and got hired in a tenure track job at University of Georgia in 2008. And I've been here ever since. And Pleading Blood isn't your first book. I seem to remember having picked up your previous book a few years ago. Was that like 2011, 2012, something like that? 2011. Soul Searching. It was, uh, I guess, a, a social and industrial history, mostly of African-American film or Black-themed film or Black-oriented film in the U.S. from 1963 to 1970. So the, the, years, the years between... 1963 was peak year for mainstream visibility for the civil rights movement. And obviously a lot of things happened that year, like the March on Washington, the assassination of Bender Evers, uh, going up until right, right on the cusp of the, the black exploitation cycle. So there's a seven year period where there are a lot of people, both independents and filmmakers who are working at studios who are really interested in making movies for black audiences or, or making movies uh, with black characters that address themes and issues and stories of, of relevance to the African-American community or to the civil rights movement. Uh, and, and basically how those efforts more or less did not work in terms of drawing an audience either African-American demographic or an art house demographic, which as it turns out, a lot of these films, um, mostly played in art houses. There's a number of them around 63, 64, like the cool world and nothing but a man that's, you know, that had some, some success on the art house circuit, but nothing really broke through. Uh, and the, the major studios tried to around 1968, another momentous year which King is assassinated and the Kerner report is published and the EOC begins to, to lean on the, the media, you know, on the film and television industry, maybe in particular to desegregate basically in terms of the kinds of movies they were making and, and television shows they were making and the people who were employed to make them. So. I got a little bit about Uptight, which was uh, Paramount's remake of The Informer, which came at the very end of 1968. The next year is when Gordon Parks' first feature is released, and he so he's the first the first African American director employed by the by the studios, and and taking it up to there's a series of interesting films that come out in 1970 that are mixed cast, which are largely about the breakdown in, in race relations in, in the U S and the sort of impasse, uh, that, you know, that the country had seemingly arrived at with regard to, well, with regard to race relations, none of those movies do particularly well either. And then that same year, Cotton comes to Harlem comes out and it's a sizable hit in 
Hollywood seizes on this as, okay, we finally got it. Here's, here's the formula. Here's how we can actually draw in black viewers. And they ride that for several years at the start of the start of the seventies. So why that subject? What got you interested in that? I was just looking for a, a paper topic for a class I took in grad school on historiography taught by Vance Kepley at, at, at Wisconsin. And this was spring of 1996 and the black exploitation films were on again, on the cusp of making sort of a comeback in, in certain circles, a number of, of black exploitation films were coming out on, on VHS at that time. And there in 1985, I think the first, the first book devoted solely to that topic came out, Darius James book. That's, that's black exploitation. It's not an academic survey by any, by any stretch, but really the, the first book to go in depth on the subject. And it's very, it's a very kind of personal, personalized remembrance of those, uh, of those films. I'm not sure Darius James was seeing the films when they originally come out, if he was too young. And also Tarantino had you know, one of the effects or one of the, the results of his of coming to, to stardom as, a, as an American independent filmmaker was this aesthetic that he tried to promote and, and publicize. And of course, he's, he will talk endlessly about the films that made an impact on him when he was growing up from the 1970s. And, and of course, black exploitation is one of those cycles. And so it's, it's late 97 when Jackie Brown comes out and that's that's probably the the when the resurgence and in interest in black exploitation really peaks so so at this time again i was just looking for a for a paper topic and i settled on black exploitation in general and the question of you know why exactly did this cycle basically disappear uh by the mid 70s not to mention black cast filmmaking in how the studios were you know, the, the studios uh, got behind distributing and, and in some cases backing these films in the, in the early 70s. MGM produced Shaft and Warner Brothers distributed Superfly, among other films. And then by the, by the middle of the decade, you know, as, as a number of scholars have, have written about, Hollywood seems to be undergoing a, a transition period where they're moving away from this focus on niche audiences. There is, I, I suppose, at the end of the 60s, a kind of recognition on the part of the Hollywood studios that there really there, there is no more mass audience. You know, they're, they're no longer making movies for this undifferentiated mass. And the future is making lower-cost films, but films that are aimed at niche audiences, and hopefully that will work. You know, they tried with the youth audience, uh, the counterculture audience uh, in the late 60s after Easy Rider is a, is a huge hit. And then they tried with, uh, you know, with uh, the African-American audience in, I think, by the mid-70s. And you know, it's kind of a cliche, but you know, with, with the appearance of blockbusters along the Jaws and then Star Wars, uh, the studios of reorient their focus. So it's, it's no longer, they're not really interested in, in making movies that are, that are cheap, but 
still profitable, but the profits that that you know the profits made on even you know even a, a hit film like Shaft are you know not not that impressive compared to the profits on The Godfather or Star Wars or or Wilson Encounters of the Third Kind and and. So the studios become much more interested in, I think they, they rediscover the knack of making blockbuster films that do have fairly widespread appeal. And they really, they, they stop hiring black directors. They stop backing films and distributing films, you know, for a largely black audience. The Wiz, uh, is the one film that's, that's sometimes cited as one of the Hollywood studios' last real attempts at putting some money into in, into a film that they hope will cross over, a film with a black cast that they hope will have some crossover potential. And when that, for the most part, fails to materialize, it just gets really dire. By the end of the by the end of the decade, it's a reversal of ten years earlier when all of a sudden, for the first time, really, studios. Uh, and producers are employing black actors and black directors and black screenwriters. And by 1980, the situation is is so dire for for black actors that the NAACP is is considering a nationwide boycott of uh, of Hollywood films. And it's really not, I would say, not until the late 80s, early 90s that Hollywood becomes interested again in, in making films for specifically for black audience. I was just interested in the question of how is it that this, you know, relatively profitable cycle of, of filmmaking just gets dropped in the, uh, in the mid seventies. And from there, I just I became interested in the, you know, in the wider topic of, uh, of black in the 1970s. I thought that's what I would write my dissertation on. And then gradually in my research, I, I shifted my focus to the 1960s because that that's an area that I think posed a lot of interesting questions. Like, but why in the middle of this, you know, highly publicized movement, when there are civil rights stories on the news every night, how is it that, you know, how is it that I don't hear of any films made in the 60s other than Sydney Poitier vehicles? You know, weren't there attempts to, you know, to make movies about black Erica with black casts for black viewers? And there, there were, it's just that they had a lot of trouble finding audiences. So with your involvement with this subject, is that kind of a natural progression to Ganja and Hess or did something else lead you to that? Yeah. My interest in Ganja and Hess basically stems from doing all that, that research Primarily because one of my one of the chapters in my first book, the last chapter where I'm talking about these films from 1970, and most of them were distributed by United Artists for some reason. They're quirky and they're also very pessimistic about the ability of black people and white people to get along. And the film that I focused on in that chapter is The Landlord, which is Hal Ashby's first film. And the landlord was was written or it was adapted from a novel by Bill Gunn. He was one of two screenplay credits he had that year on Hollywood films. And at Wisconsin, there, you know, Wisconsin has the the papers of of Norman Jewison, 
was the producer, originally was going to be the director of The Landlord, but he produced the film, let his friend and editor, Hal Ashby, direct it. And there, there are preserved copies of early draft screenplays of The, uh, of the Landlord. And so my interest in, in what Bill Gunn did on that film also coincided with just this, this interest I had had in this, this movie that I, I think I first heard about, I first like read the title Ganjin Hess in the early eighties in a book called Real Facts by Cobbett Steinberg, which was just, you know, it was a lot of statistics. It was like box office uh, performance year by year, but also there were lists of Oscar nominees and winners and, and 10 best lists from, uh, you know, various, various sources, just basically a compendium of statistics about the film industry. And one of the lists that this book compiled was a list that was a survey of film critics, historians taken by the Canadian film journal called take one in 1978, where they just, they just sent out this survey and asked, okay, for the years 1968 to 1977, which in their eyes constituted a coherent period in terms of a, a new type of, of film. It just, and I think it's, it's, you know, it's, it's justified to put the break maybe a couple of years before the 1970s actually start. But it was a survey, you know, what are the best American films? What are the best European films? What are the best quote unquote third world films of that 10 year period? And this movie called Ganjin Hess, I'd, I'd heard of most of the other, other movies on the list, even though I was 11, I think, but not Ganjin Hess. You know, I was always curious about what, you know, what is, what is this exactly? Uh, I think I saw the title again in Danny Peary's book, Cult Movies. He did not write about that, that film in, in the book, but I think it was listed as these were some other options that were considered for this book. You know, these are other films that have acquired cult reputations over the years, uh, but which for whatever, whatever reason didn't, you know, we couldn't fit them in, uh, to this particular volume, even though there were a couple more volumes in the series, he never did write about it. So yeah, I just, you know, in the eighties going into the nineties, I was sort of aware of this, of this movie, which sounded interesting and which I had, you know, I had a, had a sense that it was, it was highly thought of. And I, you know, when, when I went to grad school, I, you know, in the course of, of researching the topic of, of black cinema, the film would come up, um, just out, you know, out of my own curiosity, I wasn't incorporating it in, you know, in my dissertation, but you know, I, I would go to the library, look up sources and see what was written about this, uh, this movie. And, and then in 1998, and this is totally unexpected, but in, in 1998, which in the first year or so after the introduction of DVD, suddenly Ganjin Hess is out on DVD. And I don't think it had ever even been released on VHS, except in its alternate version. It was issued on VHS under many different titles under you know, under many different, you know, Ganjin Hess was, and this is one of its claims, one of its claims to fame is it's a movie that played, it was, it was released in April of 1973. It played for two weeks 
at a single New York theater and then it was pulled and it was sold. The negative was sold to a different distributor. That distributor brought in a film doctor who re-edited the film from, I think in its, in its original cut, it's I think 112, 111 minutes long. This, this uh, film doctor came in and cut it to around 85 or so minutes, cutting out a lot of the more poetic material from the film with an eye toward making it more narratively comprehensible. And along those lines, he actually re- reinstated or uh, you know, added to, uh, to the cut five or six scenes which had, which had actually been cut from the original uh, version, which sort of made, make the film a little more, a little more understandable, but that version had, you know, was, was widely available on VHS again, under many different titles. Blood couple is one double possession is, uh, is another, but the original Ganjin Hess, to my knowledge, was never commercially available on home video until 1998 when it's, uh, when it's, it's released and I snapped up, oh, I think it was the first DVD I, I ever bought. I didn't have a DVD player, <laughs> but yeah, I figured, okay, now finally is my, my chance to see it. And it's a, it's a movie that it does take a number of, of viewings to really, well, even after a number of viewings, there are a number of things that are, that are still pretty ambiguous. But, you know, to, I guess, to Bill Gunn's credits or, you know, to his, you know, it's, it's a testament to his bravery that he, he did cut so much of the exposition either out of the, out of what he shot, you know, out of the, the footage that he was using to assemble the, the final cut of the film, but also out of his out of his original scripts and and the original the original screenplay or at least one of the one of the final drafts I'm not sure if it's the shooting script was was published in 1991 in a in an anthology collection of of original screenplays by African American screenwriters like edited by Phyllis Clodman comparing Donjon has the film to the screenplay, and and I also you know was able to uncover other drafts of the screenplay. I think the earliest the earliest draft is uh, has has was deposited at um, the um, New York Performing Arts Library many years ago. So curious to know what your initial impression of the movie was. I mean, there were there were certainly things I was confused about just from a. a the standpoint of, of just narrative comprehension, but I was having some sense of, of what, you know, what the plot line of the film was, you know, I think I was able to piece together what was going on. It's always a really interesting experience when you've read about a film for, for years and you don't necessarily think that you'll ever be able to, at least in the nineties, uh, you, you don't ever think, or you, you think you may never have the chance to actually see this, see this film someday. And so I guess the first time I saw Ganjin Hess, like the first time I saw Pure the Food, on some level, it's a little disappointing because I, I created my version of the film already in my head based on what I had read. 
and of, of course the film the actual filmmakers are are not not necessarily going to to have the same kinds of you know the, the same kinds of preferences that that I do <laughs> so and of and obviously they're a thousand times more imaginative than than I am so they go in these interesting directions and tangents. Actually, both of those films are, I think, characterized by, you know, these really interesting tangents that, that don't really have anything at all to do with linear narrative, you know, narrative drive. So I guess the first time I saw Ganjin Hess, I was trying to adjust to this other person's vision of the story, weird as this all sounds, compared to what, you know, what my in envisioning had uh, had been and it is the type of film that compels rewatching and i rewatched it many times and and became i was but was more and more under the spell of this this film the more i the more i saw it and i tried to incorporate it into you know into classes i was teaching it was around that time i i you know, lectured my own Introduction, introduction to cinema course for the first time. Somehow I thought, yeah, it'd be great if I can Ganjin Hest in this. Um, and I mean, the students were just utterly stupefied. A year and a half ago, I regularly teach a class on the horror film. And because this was, uh, this was right before my book was, was coming out, I decided for the first time in 20 years that, yeah, maybe I'll I should probably show this to students and, um, and, and see what their, their reactions are. And certainly I can answer any questions that they have having basically lived with this film for about nine years by that point, I guess I'm, I must've done an okay job of, of setting it up because the students really did find it pretty, pretty fascinating. It was an interesting contrast to most of the films that we had watched over the course of the semester, but I think they could also draw some some parallels to some of the some of the artier horror movies that uh, that that we had uh, that we had watched. But they you know they they seemed totally fine with it. I mean, they had some some questions about what happened here, what 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 is this character about? But I think for the most part, they were they were totally willing to just go along with the flow of the film. And I think that's, you know, probably the ideal way to, to see it the first time is to, and I think Bill Gunn would probably encourage, you know, that who cares about the vampire mythos, who cares about the vampire legend, who cares about the conventions of the vampire film that you're expecting to, to see in every vampire, just, just go along with what I'm doing, whether it's, you know, these, these incredibly evocative visuals or the incredibly evocative soundtrack and the spin I'm putting on certain conventions of the vampire genre, knowing that this, this is a, this is a story about African-American characters and a, a very specific class type of, uh, of African-American character. Just, you know, don't go into this expecting to see Dracula. This is, this is something very, very different. Uh, and the more the more I researched about the backstory of the film, the production history, I mean, it's it's on the face of it, it's just on a superficial level, it's it's pretty fascinating 
how this film got made, what happened to it after it was finished and the various afterlives that it's, that it's had over the last 50 years. Um, yeah, just, just the details of, and then the book really digs into those details uh, of the production of, you know, the, the, the slight differences from screenplay draft to screenplay draft, the illusions in the film to, you know, all, all kinds of things. Uh, and, and Bill Gunn's career as, uh, as an artist, when I was in the very early stages of, of researching this book, one of the first things I did was reach out to people who had worked on the film. I think the first person I, I tried was that first person, um, I think it was email address I could find, which was Chiz Schultz. He was the producer of the film, longtime friend of, uh, of Bill Gunn's and I interviewed him. I went to, uh, I guess, Terrytown, New York to, uh, to talk to him. And he, he informed me that another deposit of, uh, of, of Bill Gunn's materials is, you know, is, is going to be made at the Schomburg Center. But there's already some stuff that I looked at, at the New York Performing Arts Library. And I think the, now the bulk of it, and possibly because I think, I think, um, Gunn's mother had recently passed away, but now the bulk of it was going to the Schottenberg Center, and in those papers are dozens of of manuscripts, with play scripts, or 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 screenplays, or television series pilots, novels, short stories. Bill Gunn was an amazingly prolific writer. Once once he decided to commit to writing, he started out as an actor. He came to New York from Philadelphia in the mid fifties. He fell in with the circle of, of friends of, of James Dean and Martin Landau and a lot of very young stage actors in, in New York at that time who were studying the method, who were studying acting at the actor's studio. So, you know, so Bill Gunn became a good friend of, of, of James Dean. He became a good friend of Montgomery Clift. I think Gogan, he originated the role uh, of the protagonist. I believe his name is Spencer Scott in uh, the Lewis Patterson play, Take a Giant Step. So he you know, pretty quickly acquires a, a good-sized reputation as, as an, a stage actor. And from there, he makes a number of appearances on television, not he wasn't in too many films. He's in the Sound and the Fury, the Martin Ritz adaptation in the late uh, the late fifties. But he's on a number of of television series, a lot of anthology shows, and in the early sixties, he basically makes uh, makes a, a shift from full time actor to to full time writer. He he writes his first play around that time. He publishes his first novel, I think in 1964, well, he begins work on a number of uh, projects. And then by the later sixties, he's starting to, to get into screenwriting and he has a number of offers. He joins up with Haribald, Harry Belafonte's production company and Chiz Schultz is, is part of that, uh, is part of that company. He's commissioned to write the screenplay for the Angel, the Angel of Vine, 
Levine, Levine. Okay, I always forget. But it was Harry Belafonte's, I think it's his return to film acting after about a decade hiatus. He, so he gets a screenwriting credit on that film. He gets hired think, on the recommendation of Chiz Schultz. He gets hired to, um, to adapt the landlord for Norman Jewison and Hal Ashby, uh, Hal Ashby. And, and so in 19, you know, around 1969, he is very much in demand and he manages to get a, uh, to, to sign a contract with Warner brothers to direct an original screenplay of his. And so he becomes, I believe the fourth African-American director hired by a studio. This is after parks and Melvin Van Peebles makes Watermelon Man for Columbia. Ozzie Davis makes Cotton Comes to Harlem. End of 1969, Bill Gunn begins shooting in San Juan on a movie that would eventually become become known as Stop with um, a cast. It's a married white couple played by Edward Bell and uh, Linda Marsh who encounter kind of a convoluted backstory, but basically they're there because Edward Bell's brother who has, who owns a house in San Juan has just died by his own hand. Also has, you know, killed his wife. So Edward Bell, who is a writer, a New York writer who is experiencing writer's block, moves down there hoping to, uh, you know, to become productive. He and his wife have marital issues. They meet a couple things. <laughs> one thing leads to another. And, uh, ultimately there is swapping of partners. There is a very long scene in which, uh, you know, that, that replicates a, a mescaline trip. There's a lot of weird subjective imagery. Bill Gunn delivers, uh, I think a three hour final cut to, uh, to Warner brothers. And after, you know, after showing initial enthusiasm about this, uh, this cut Warner brothers, then basically takes the, takes the fellow away from, from uh, gun brings in an editor. They whittle it down to about 90 minutes. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The copy that exists today, and this is also, it, Stop was never released in in commercial theaters. It never had a run. Um, Warner Brothers just sat on it for a few years and then permanently shelved it. Warner's had had, had it re-edited, and the film that should have marked Bill Gunn's entry into you know in into Hollywood, and I I. It's hard to say exactly how long he would have, how long he would have hung around Hollywood and had much of a much of a career. Given, you know, given that his aesthetic is not exactly, it's not really a commercial aesthetic by any means. So this film is taken away from him. It's it's never released. Uh, yeah, the copy that um, that exists today is the Warner Brothers cut dubbed from a, a VHS tape. And I think it originates with, um, Sam Wayman, who was Gunn's partner and his collaborator on a number of projects, including Dungeon S. But Stop has never been commercially released. There was sort of rumors about eight or so years ago that it, at Warner's was going to finally release it, you know, through a Warner home archive. And that never happened. It's, it's been reported that 
There was a 35 millimeter print that was shown at the Whitney Museum in 1990, which somehow vanished after. It's, I really have no idea exactly what, in what form stop, stop still exists, but there's a number of, of interesting documents left behind, particularly, um, a number of screenplay drafts that are, you know, that are part of the, um, of the Bill Gunn collection at Shaw, the Jobber Center. All this, this stuff, all of these projects that, that never really came to, to fruition other than Ganjin Hess. This is three years after stop, you know, after, well, a couple years after stop, Bill Gunn meets Quinn Kelly, who had just, or was in the process of beginning an independent production slash distribution company with, with a guy named Jack Jordan. And Kelly Jordan was, was going to be basically, they were positioning themselves as the artistic, high quality, more sophisticated source for black movies in the, in the early seventies. Very, very quickly, black exploitation gets help, gets a, a bad reputation, maybe especially among African-American critics. And there is a lot of unhappiness about, about the fact that even while there is this, this boom in employment for especially black actors, but black creatives and, and, uh, and even on the, you know, the craft side of the technical side, there's finally some progress in, in hiring of African-Americans in, in the film and television industry, but most of the films that are that are being produced for black audiences are movies like Superfly, which you know, which was detested by you know in many corners when it was initially released because it purportedly romanticized drug addiction and uh, you know and and pushing. So Kelly Jordan was supposed to be the antidote to that. They were going to make quality movies about black stories with black casts, but also with black directors and writers, most of whom were, were taken from other media, many of whom were also expatriates. So, um, the first Kelly Jordan film was Georgia, Georgia, which was an original screenplay by Maya Angelou and was set, set in Sweden, starring Diana Sands as a, a singer kind of modeled upon Eartha Kitt that, that, that comes out in 1972 and it's, you know, it's, it's fairly successful and Kelly Jordan start to develop these more and more grandiose plans. They are going to have James Baldwin write and direct, uh, an original script. He wrote the scripts, but the film never got made. They were going to, they were going to, uh, you know, have Maya Angelou direct in that nation of, of. I know why the cage bird sings. They were bringing in a number of black artists who already had established a reputation in, in other media to, you know, to lend a, 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 a note of, or to, to, to lend this veneer of artistic achievements and, and sophistication and, and really distinguish itself in the marketplace. You know, all of the other studios, even the small independent distributors and, and the production companies are making 
exploitation films. You know, they're making films where African-American people are depicted as criminals and drug addicts and, and sex crazed. And we're not going to do that. We're not going to, we're not going to do crime pictures. We're not going to do films like Superfly or the Mac or coffee or whatever. Bill Gunn meets Quentin Kelly and pitches him on the possibility of, of writing and directing a film for them. I'm still not entirely clear on who approached who. It's possible that Gunn was the one to approach Quinn Kelly and ask for a job, but Gunn, in his interviews, at least once said that Kelly sought him out and offered and, and gave him this script that was basically going to be a black exploitation vampire film. And this is this is before Blackulo even came out. I've never found any trace of of this this script that supposedly when Kelly gave to Bill Gunn and said, you know, here make this and Gunn just completely rewrote it. There's a lot of debate over exactly what the origins of, of the film were. But the the story that Gunn repeatedly told, you know, whenever he would show Ganjin Hess or 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 be interviewed about it, is that he came on um and the expectations of Kelly and Jordan is that he would he would make a kind of a straight vampire film, like a a black version of Dracula. Again, this is before before Blackula. And Gunn was not having that, but but he delivered a a, a, a first draft script called Blood that in the script survives. It's it's part of the collection at New York Public Library. The, the performing arts library. You know the story that it that it tells is fairly close to what ultimately becomes Conchin Hess, but the vampire angle is stressed much much more. The word vampire appears over and over in the original script. Reportedly, this is the draft that Bill Gunn gave to Quinn Kelly, and Quinn Kelly says, "Fantastic, this is what we want. Go ahead." And then, according to Gunn, he then wrote a second draft took out all of the references to vampires, took out all of the you know, the horror movie cliches that he, had, that he had inserted in the first draft, knowing that if he got the job, if he got the go-ahead to make a, to make a movie, that you know, he had no interest in, in vampires, he had no interest in, in horror movie convention. He was just going to take it all out and make the movie that he, that he wanted to make. The amount of work you put into your book is evident. It's just amazing to see all of these different versions, how you annotate and say, okay, yeah, this was in the screenplay. This was in this version, you know, here's even all of these shots that were from scenes that were shot, but just don't even exist anymore. The, the Harvard archives of the cinematographer, I believe it's just amazing stuff. I mean, how long did it take you to put all of this together? My first book came out in 2011 and not too long after that, I, I guess I sort of had the idea in the back of my mind uh, that you know I, I really, I really enjoyed learning more about Bill Gunn when I wrote about the landlord. I you know I'm really interested in in this this person's career. He was an actor and a playwright and a novelist and a screenwriter and a director. And I've, you know, found out a little bit about them, but I'd, I'd love to know more. And maybe I can, maybe I'll do a, a, you know, one of those 
BFI monographs on uh, on Ganjin Hess, you know, one of those shorts, ninety <laughs> page small books. You know that they've done dozens and dozens for about three decades now. I think I began researching in earnest in 2012. That's that's when I I first. That's when I interviewed Chiz Schultz and I interviewed Quentin Kelly. Quentin Kelly, who's had a pretty fascinating career after his his very brief time as a quote unquote studio mogul. You know, he completely leaves the film business in the mid seventies and later becomes the head of a, a wastewater treatment, solar water, I believe the, the name of the the company. It's you know, it, it basically manufactures machinery that can convert, um, you know, that can, that can convert water anywhere to, to clean water and, and, you know, build this whole fortune as an entrepreneur in that, uh, in that arena. Talked to Gwen Kelly and, and then, yeah, for, for the next five, six, seven years, it just seemed like I, the more I learned, the more I became aware of other stuff that I didn't know. And, and I, I made repeat trips to the near performing arts library to the Schomburg center. Yeah. And it was relatively late in my researching that I learned that the, the cinematographer on Gungeon has James Hinton, who made the claim that he was the director of photography on the film, that he was the first black cinematographer on a, on a North American feature. But for the most part, he, you know, he made documentary films, you know, did a lot of industrial films, government sponsored, uh, film work. But I learned that he had a collection at Harvard that he deposited, you know, all of his papers, but also that he had deposited all of the films, you know, the, the stuff that he had, that he had managed to hold on to from his entire career. And among that collection of, of footage were 16 millimeter reels with, uh, you know, with outtakes from Ganjin Hess stuff that had not even, you know, not even been in the original, original cut. So this was stuff that, that, you know, didn't even you know, were not even options for when, you know, Ganjanes was taken out of Bill Gunn's hands and the, the guy who re-edited it, you know, because he had cut so much stuff from Gunn's version, he had to go back to you know, stuff on the cutting room floor from when Gunn initially edited the, the picture to put it back in, to at least pad it to an 80 plus minute running time. These were seen excerpts that had never been part of any version of, of Ganjin Hest that as far as I knew, I was the first person to, to look at these in, in decades. And there, you know, as, as the framing productions in the book attest to, uh, I mean, there, the footage is pretty washed out, but, and then there's no, uh, you know, there was no sound, no soundtrack created to, to support these images, but there's some really tantalizing stuff like you now the toward the end of the film there's uh there's a sequence in which hess invites a, a young man to uh, to dinner in the bill gunn cut we we have no idea who this person is in in his original screenplay it is clear it's actually someone who hess knows from his his volunteer work at a you know i think like a free clinic in in harlem he invites this young man over 
and the purpose of which is for the Onan to, you know, to be their victim. You know, he and Ganja, his, his now wife are addicted to blood and they obviously, they, they, you know, needed to survive. And so this young man comes over an immediate flirtation starts up between him and, and Ganja. And then at some point Hess just drops out of the picture. You know, he just, you know, vanishes from the scene and there is, you know, a, a fairly extended sex scene between Ganja and this, uh, this young man, you know, up until the point where she attacks him, drains him of his blood. There are uh, a few extra minutes you know, from the, the, the filming of this, uh, of this sequence that are, you know, that are very interesting in the, in the movie, this guy just suddenly appears like they're eating, they're all eating dinner. Um, but in, you know, these unused takes Hess, you see Hess walking, you know, walking this young man into his, uh, you know, to his estate and they both walk into the, to the main room where the fireplace is and they both just stop dead in their tracks. You know, they're I'm looking at the camera. Uh, and then there's a reverse shot to, to Ganja in this stunning red dress. When Hess had left her earlier that morning, she was, you know, she was basically strung out from, you know, from thirst. It's revealed over the course of the scene when you, when you follow the, the original script that she, you know, she's recovered because there was a stray cat <laughs> running around the, uh, around the estates that Ganja killed and, and drank its blood. So, and, and you see more interaction between Ganja and, uh, of this young man who doesn't even have a name in the, uh, in the film, Ganja puts on a, puts on a record and they, you know, they're, they're dancing together and it's, you know, it's, it's really, you know, it's, it's, it's charming scene. There's another moment, uh, in the, uh, in the film that's, it's, uh, it happens a little earlier than the scene I just described, but it's, it's basically Hess has to break the news to Ganja that he has turned her into a, into a vampire. And there's this, it's a very lyrical scene where they're walking in a, in a field there, you know, have these very colorful blankets draped around each other. And there's in the, in the used footage, there's you know, this very charming shot of the two of them sitting next to each other. You know, their, their shoes are off. They're sitting in the grass, holding each other. It's, it's, it's a moment of it's kind of a intimacy between the two that you know that is that is a lot more chaste than the intimacy that you see between them elsewhere in the film. Uh, it's just a you know it's a, just a very lovely moment in this almost pastoral setting that you know that isn't in the the, the finished film, but it gives us a look at you know a couple in which a couple although they are frequently in conflict and ultimately, ultimately Hess will commit suicide, but Ganjo will not follow him. You know, he, he begs her to come with him into, into wherever the afterlife is that he's so uh, that he's going to. And she decides, no, that she'd rather, she'd rather stick around. There's a lot of tension and hostility between the two, but you know, here is a rare moment in which you really do see that there is, there's also love between them. Which helps to explain why they, you know, why they are together, why they stay together. That is not so not so clear in the uh, in the the finished film. So, what are you working on these days? I've been commissioned to write a uh, 
chapter on Melvin Van Peebles for a book, an anthology about the, the French New Wave, which I think is going to be, it's going to be called The Other New Wave. So it's, it's basically directors who are either not commonly associated with the New Wave or who are largely forgotten, you know, whose names have not gone down in history as being important contributors to the New Wave. Professor Steven, thank you so much for your time. This was wonderful talking with you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Where did you get all your money? That's an impolite question. They're the only ones worth asking. Now don't tell me your mother named you Dr. Green. It's very unfriendly. Change is impossible because we're addicted to our society, especially the upper middle class. The United States of America is the most violent country in the world. We're the best in the business. It's a lovely day. I don't like to raise my voice. Dr. Green, if I may say so, you don't look that good. Go away! What are you? I'm an addict. back and we are talking about ganja and hess and the one thing that we haven't really discussed too much is the remake that happened a few years ago from spike lee and it's interesting he credited the screenplay to himself and gone and there's a lot of this that was in the screenplay that wasn't shot or things that were shot that might have ended up in blood couple might have ended up on the cutting room floor I mean, Seeming's book is amazing. If folks are interested in Ganja and Hess, you have to read his book. It is just fascinating. And just that he even goes through and has, has stills from scenes that were shot, but just never used. And it, it's really fascinating. He goes through like a scene by scene breakdown of everything. Really good stuff. And just the history behind the movie, what happened before it was made, what happened after it was made. It's great. And this was just this kind of interesting, and he, he luckily he wrote this, his book after, uh, the sweet blood of Jesus came out. So he even addresses some things that were in there. So yeah, it's pretty fascinating, but the sweet blood of Jesus, it's an odd movie. Um, you know, cause it does feel a little bit like a rerun at times. If you are familiar with Gunjin Hess, and then there are other things that he throws in there where I'm just like, okay, this wasn't anywhere before. And I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll just put it out there. The lesbianism that is in this movie. I mean, you mentioned Jean Roland. I mean, it feels like, and I mentioned the hunger. 
it feels like he's going for the hunger in this movie more than anything. There's like this whole protracted lesbian scene and she ends up with the woman at the end of the film. And I'm just like, is this titillation? It almost feels like exploitation just shoved in the middle of this film rather than it really like being a love story or anything like that. It, it just, that part was very odd for me. I love that Heather talked about the the prominence of, of the male nudity and how unusual that was in the original because I think one of the faults of this movie is there are several moments that I would 100% call gratuitous, including what you're talking about, where it just goes into a really, what feels to me like a very canned Playboy version of, of sex and nudity. There's a couple dead bodies where their boobs are hanging out the whole time, which is like, okay, like I'm I'm not against boobs at all, trust me. But, you know, there, there's a lot of those moments where it's like, okay, you can either cut away from that or you can just continue to show this dead person's naked body. And there, there's more than one moment like that. And I think that you're right that the lesbian stuff is also like, all right, we're, it's, it's not new ground. You know what I mean? It's not like what Heather was talking about where it's like, wow, I've, I'm simultaneously kind of chuckling at this naked guy running at me in slow motion. But also I'm like, nobody was doing this. This is awesome. Like, good for you for showing that. The nudity in the sweet blood of Jesus is everyone in it is beautiful, but I don't think it's particularly like groundbreaking the way they do it. Gaze and intent is everything too, because like with Roland, the thing that always stood up to me about his films is he loves women, but not in a way where it's like, you know, hey guys, like look at this lovely ladies. It's like it's not leering. It's you know he loves women for like they're these are strong female characters. These are. It doesn't feel like tawdry or anything. And there's nothing, I mean, I, I just, I'm obviously not like some blushing violet when it comes to, like, it comes to nudity or sex of movies. But, you know, I do appreciate it when someone can do something differently and intelligently and not just where you feel like you're getting a little too much of a peek at you. There. I've never written letters mm-hmm. like this. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's it gets, it's into that territory. Like I, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I, I'm with you 100. percent Like I did, I do feel like it. it ve- like I don't think anyone involved in this podcast right now is particularly prudish. Oh, won't somebody please think of the children? But we we know innovative sex stuff, and we know tired old penthouse letters sex stuff, and it does veer a little bit into that direction, in my opinion. I, I did not watch the completed version of this because I actually got kind of disgusted because I love not to be like so precious about things. I loved Ganja and has so much and I just immediately was like, wow, none of the magic. I'm not seeing any of the magic that that pulled me to loving the original. And on top of that, I tried to be more open minded, like maybe I just need to read something, revisit it, return to it. And then I saw that Bruce Hornsby's name was attached to the soundtrack and not to be that bitch. But I am that bitch. I cannot with the Bruce Hornsby. You might as well throw Don Henley on there and just make sure I never, never, ever watch it. I can't. I can't with the Bruce Hornsby. Heaven is mandolin rain can go fuck off sky high. I can't. I can't with it. Like, why would you do this to my Ganjin has with its gorgeous? The soundtrack to Ganjin has is so good. It's so good. And to have somebody do something where it's Bruce Hornsby, it's just, I'm sorry. It's like finding... It's like finding a gross stag roll with your parents in it. Heather, I will I will say that um, Mr. Hornsby's work is un- mostly understated jazz piano. I'm I'm not a particular Bruce Hornsby fan, but I did clock that as well. It was like, oh God, what are we in for? I have to say, 
Like if you if you hadn't told me it was him, I wouldn't have been like, hmm, this seems very Bruce Hornsby ish. It's uh I, I, I will say to everybody's credit, apparently this was like Spike Lee's first attempt at crowdfunding because he just didn't want to mess with trying to get this thing made otherwise, which I respect, but uh but they, they did work to include a lot of new music, whether that also means cheap music, who knows. Oh yeah, it was like wall to wall needle drops at times. You know, they made some some effort to to do all right with the soundtrack. Again, I'm not a Bruce Hornsby apologist. I I understand your disgust. Um, to your other point, I do think that coolness that we talk about in the original. I think part of the reason it works is also because it has this psychedelic, arty, vaguely mystical quality. And I think one of the problems I had with this remake was it kind of keeps that same pace and it keeps everybody's kind of understated reactions to what should be, oh my God, screaming moments in their lives, but it doesn't have that darkness. It still looks like a really well shot, nicely lit Spike Lee movie. So I think a lot of that mood doesn't land. You're just like, why aren't these people reacting? Why is this person acting like they're on too many downers right now instead of screaming? You know, like it doesn't, for some reason, I feel like it works in the original because the entire mood of the movie kind of fits that. And with this, I was like, so it's a more conventional looking movie, but you're kind of maintaining this attitude and this pace that doesn't work, in my opinion. Over the years, Spike has had problems with different groups. I mean, he's had problems with Korean people. He's had problems with Jewish people. He's had problems with gay people. So when the prostitute ends up being on and i had to look this up um because i didn't get it from watching it when the prostitute that he ends up leading um being his first victim when she uh has anti-aids drugs uh in her purse and he starts throwing up i'm just like is this like a little anti-gay thing is this a little homophobia thing here like because in the original i think the prostitute was on drugs so that's why he gets sick afterwards on this it's more like it almost feels more like oh i can't believe i i ate from somebody with hiv this turns my stomach is what it felt like and i'm just like oh man just there's a lot of sour notes in in spike cinema i i see your point but i have to say i liked the updating of that i liked the acknowledgement that, oh, in the modern times, if you drink blood, maybe that is a thing you have to worry about. And the fact that he goes and gets the HIV test. Like, I agree that that whole scene could have gone down better, but I kind of liked, I liked the idea of it. It was interesting to see Rami Malek in here. The, I was just going to say that. Yeah. yeah. The only person that I recognized really, and I didn't, I'm not that familiar with the, the people that played Ganja or Hess or pretty much anybody else. But, and then at times, like, I mean... <laughs> I'm not sure if I like Rami Malek as an actor. I like him as a person. When I've seen him on Graham Norton, he's pretty hilarious, but he's really overdoing it with like the Britishisms and all this. And I'm just like, ah, give me Archie. I'd rather have Archie back than this guy. I love Archie. Oh my God. I loved Archie. Like, oh, it still broke my heart when he was like, you see his body. And I, was, I literally screamed out, not Archie. <laughs> like, I love yeah. Okay. I feel better about that too, Mike, because the main film I've seen with Rami, Rami was um, uh, that James Bond film. Was it Quantum of Solace? Oh. You could tell I paid a lot of attention. Yeah. I think it was. <laughs> that. I kept getting. Bored. I don't remember. It was. I think it was. It's the new one. 
And he just like, he didn't do it for me. I mean, granted, I'm more old school with my James Bond villains. Like even, I mean, my newest school one that I loved was Christopher Walken, if that tells you anything. God, him and Grace Jones, though, so good. The view to a kill. But, um, <laughs> but I don't know. Uh, and my problem, and I need to, and I'll say this, I need to see more of Spike Lee's filmography because I haven't seen like everything he's made. I haven't seen a ton of it. You know, and I think he's got some strengths, but one of his biggest finances for me is I feel like I feel like he definitely has issues with women, and I don't often feel like he explores those in a, in an interesting way. It's like the whole sexual thing too, where it's like, I mean, Russ Meyer is one of my uh, my heroes. Okay, I'm not opposed to filmmakers having obsessions and and them being sexual, but again, it's like anything you do. As an artist, you have to make it interesting and you have to be able to step outside your own baggage or fixation enough to make it to make it interesting. It can't just be you having a hand party. You know, it's got to be able to see your own bullshit, too. Like Hodorowsky often talks about how like El Topo, especially was his film where he was working out. He knew he had issues with women because of like a lot of it stemmed to his mother but he knew that he saw his own shit and being like yeah i i had this in me i had this things where i had problems with women and he used that to to look inward and explore that and i just feel like spike lee i would love to see him do that and maybe he has done it and i haven't seen it in fairness i obviously didn't get far enough film to see the anti-hiv thing but i mean i like son of sam or summer of sam like it hit it hit me so badly that that's why I haven't further explored a lot of Spike Lee's newer movies because I hated that film so much and especially the whole scene with Adrian Brody as a sex worker dancing and he it's like Spike Lee went out of his way to make it seem like oh my god oh this poor young lad dancing for gay men he just made it seem like it was the seediest disgusting most disgusting thing in the world and I was like I was offended both for anybody who's a sex worker because that's a very obviously kind of problematic view of that but especially for like anybody who's gay like oh it's okay for you to make rosie perez cry because you want her titties in your movie make her cry off set that's okay but god forbid a guy be a go-go boy like i have issues i have issues with that that's made especially clear because if we look back at the original source ganja is such an unconventional outspoken interesting female character i can't really think of anyone else who enters a scene quite the way that character does especially from that era and so i think it's especially glaring that it is again with respect for the spike lee movies i like i do think that sometimes you're like this is like an out of touch old guy's view of sex you know it's just got that like ooh, and then let me show you the other nasty thing they did and you're like oh that yeah, okay, like, whatever. And same with the, the Brody scene you're talking about. It's like, oh, imagine someone got up and danced for other men. Like, oh, my God. You know, like, there's there's almost, like, an expected outrage that doesn't land because we're sitting here in the time we live in going, sure, all right, and what's next? It is kind of like having, like, your grandpa in a I actually almost, like, can accept. I don't accept it better, but it makes my anger... It, your laughter helps so much with healing, doesn't it? Don't tell Spike Lee I called him an old man, please. He's not old by any means as far as age goes, but it is like such an outdated attitude. I mean, especially because we're watching this film, Graduate Test is from like the early 70s. And and I mean, I know like Mike, me and you have talked about a, a number of films from this era on other episodes where 
there's a lot of progressiveness. And yeah, obviously, I'm not saying everything was progressive back then. I mean, obviously, it wasn't. But there's more than a lot of people would think. And even with the exploitation or films that were called exploitation, sometimes those films end up having more progressiveness than their Hollywood mainstream equivalents, too. You know, hey, kids, you want to see something? It's like, yeah, OK, yeah, we've your old issue of Jugs. That's real cool. Gramps. That's And then let me tell you what happened. <laughs> Two dudes? <laughs> on, on a more practical level, maybe you guys can help me with this. I'm confused about what in this version of the movie kills people versus what makes them come back to life as vampires. Because I feel like in the original, it was fairly clear that you had to get stabbed with the knife. And I feel like in this one, everybody's just getting turned into vampires and then showing up later. And I didn't follow the logic of it. Am I? Did I, did I just miss something? There is the knife at first. I think he stabs her with the knife as well. And then, yeah, you really start to see the whole people coming back to life when you just feed on them at all. Um, especially the, the lady at the end, I guess that's Hess's ex girlfriend, I think, right. That comes back at the end. She's got the really blue eyes. She's the one that does the whole, the hunger scene with, uh, Ganja. Yeah. That's his, his ex where they immediately lock into the, the penthouse lesbian stuff. There's the woman from the projects too, which I also like, I don't buy that. That woman is just sitting outside her place in the projects and goes to this man. She just met on a park bench she goes, Oh yeah, that's my apartment. That's where I live. You want to party? Like, I just don't with, without like another factor involved, like, mental illness or, or drugs. I just don't buy that that went down that way. Because he just comes and picks her up so easily. The guy's an attractive dude, but it's just like, uh, maybe like five minutes, like maybe wait five minutes. And then she's got her baby with her. I'm just like, I'm sure she doesn't feel that sexy right now, but I don't know. And then apparently like you see her later and he had fed on her and she's in a later scene and stuff. I, I, yeah. I was having a hard time. Listen, man, I sit outside the projects all day, and that doesn't happen to me. One of these days, Heather, we'll, we'll, we'll have a big, long talk about Summer of Sam, and we'll talk about how the whole movie's just uh, John Leguizamo trying to have anal sex with his wife. Front murder, Oh, and, it, like, the premise was so cool. Like, the on paper, it's like, man, this should be that ass. And that's the thing. I'm not a total hater. Spike Lee, man, when he's on it, like, oh, he's made some, he's made some really, like, compelling movies. Like, he's super talented in a lot of ways, but... Ooh, that was not a, that was not one to win that argument that was that was rough and i'm i'm pretty i think we're all pretty lenient open-minded like we love cinema we're not the kind of people that like oh, i want to tear it down <laughs> you know it's like no we love movies like please give us something to love give us something to delve into you know it's a it's give it's taking it's the whole it's what makes life so much fun it's what gets us through the day so when somebody just it just feels like you've been done wrong. <laughs> I will say, like, a lot of his stuff, it looks great. It's shot great. You know, like I said, I don't think that the way it's shot fits the pace and or the mood of the original. But, like, it is, like, a lot of his stuff, it's, it's great to look at. It's just, um, I could have I cut a half hour out of it, tightened the whole thing up, and, you know, made it a little... I don't know, like like I said before, I just don't think the pace and, and the style of the acting doesn't really fit the way it looks. I mean, there are moments where it feels more exploitative than Blood Couple. I did remember the second Fred Halstead <laughs> Oh, good. <laughs> 50 minutes later, uh, it's Sex Garage, which was considered the first bisexual uh, movie. 
because you guys finished the movie do you feel like that it's like the whole thing with the lesbian scene it definitely felt more like sort of like hetero male fan service than it did like these are two women who truly are engaged with each other you know it's almost more like porny kind of lesbian and not like actual like these are two women that are like vibing with each other yeah that was definitely my sense it was all a little music video very porny in yeah its, in its portrayal of them of course yeah i'm not not shocked yeah okay we, we get it spike gay dudes are gross but two hot ladies getting it on is fine just uh i'm sorry yeah old grandpa's right all right let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show top of the heat written by and starring christopher st john uh-uh. Ain't gonna be no days like that. You're gonna have to shoot me right in my face, Mr. Black P. When a black man bears his soul and tells his story, he lets it all hang out. His rage was the illness of the times. Hey, I just got back from a trip to the moon! Hassled by his soul brothers with his mother dying, he can only escape to the moon. You're gonna have to kill me, nigga! Drop that knife! Drop it! What the hell are you trying to do, huh? What, are you trying to kill me, you black bastard? I put on this uniform, and I go out there in the streets, and people look at me, and they hate me! That's because you're a mean... Selfish man. Captain Latimer, what yes. has the training for the flight been like? Isolation. Uh, isolation is sort of uh, 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 like waiting at the mailbox for your welfare check. I have a little itch here. Uh... Yes, sir? Take off your uniform, Lieutenant. Yes, sir. Hey, mother, you want me to pull out my thing and blow you a new hole? Hey! What's you on your pocket? Damn, brother, you the man? The most unusual picture of its time starring Christopher St. John whom you last saw in Shaft. I can do any damn thing I want. Come on, you nigga. I'm gonna fix it so you won't be dealing for a while, baby. Top of the Heap is a powerful, dynamic story as only a black man can tell it. That's right, our Black History Month continues next week with Philip Fentis' The Baron, which was also produced by Ganja and Hess's producer, Chiz Schultz. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Leon and Heather. So, Leon, what's been keeping you busy, sir? Amazingly, I continue to be employed as a real-life feature movie editor. But um, more interesting, if you are anywhere in New York City, I do a monthly event called Attack of the 50-Foot Movie, where I show cult films in the back of a bar. Uh, we have drag and burlesque performers, and um, it's a party. Uh, if you go to 50footmovie.com, that's 50footmovie.com, you can find out where we are every month and what we're doing. Is that F-T or is that F-O-O-T? That would be 50-F-O-O-T-M-O-V-I-E.com. Like a 50 foot, like 50 feet, like all in my face with rings on the toes? <laughs> it's actually just a giant oh. foot fetish party. And now that I said that, I'm going to... Now some creep's going to be there besides the usual creeps. It's going to be great. Um, I'm going to have to explain that it's not a foot thing. So thank you. Whatever. 
Um, <laughs> come to the party. It is what you make it. And Heather, what's the latest with you, ma'am? Well, uh, I recently wrote an article about the music video for Aggie IOU Sometimes Why by uh, the synth pioneer new wave band Even Ozen for upcoming issue of the Outre Culture Zine Scree. That's S-K-R-E-E. You can also read my wee little primer on the key films, occult film author Nico Masarakis over at the Arrow Films blog. Uh, for all this and more, too, you can go to my website at com. Thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I work on. They're all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. <laughs>